Hello and welcome to Daddy Issues, the podcast where we talk about father and son relationships in popular culture. Today we're talking about Road to Perdition, and here to discuss it with me is the OG, original gangster, David Bryan. Thank you for the recognition. You know, I've been a gangster for so long now, finally. I've always said that about you. Always. Well, he is the, the, <laughs> o, the actual OG. Like, people are like, oh, who was it? You know, was there a real gangster culture before Mario Puzo wrote The Godfather and just ingested it into popular culture? Was it Al Capone? No, no, no. It was David Bryan. Always said it. This guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's nice, Don. Thanks. How are you? Oh, Christ. Well, as I already told you, off pod. Um... That's what we're saying the biz. It's been, a, pod. it's been a fucking shit day. It's been a shit day, man. But we're going to talk about gangster films. So we're make it better. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. If I, I tell you what, if I could have a Tommy gun like Tom Hanks in Road to Perdition and I would use it, there's none of this. You know how in America they're always like, oh, I have a gun for self-defense. Oh, I have a gun for hunting. And in the UK, we're all like, no, you have guns because you're psychopaths. Now I get it. Right? <laughs> when, I, when I buy my Tommy gun, I'll be telling everyone, oh, it's for hunting. And they'll be like, what, hunting bootleggers? And I'll be like, you're goddamn fucking <laughs> right. Goddamn right. Yeah. Prohibition for life. <laughs> That's what made you the original gangster, was your your Christian attitudes towards banning the consumption of alcohol. Absolutely, straight for, out of the mean streets of Chertsey in Surrey. <laughs> well, let's get straight into uh, to Road to Perdition then, before I have to think too much about my life choices. And uh, <laughs> uh, you, this is another David Bryan special, one that you, you brought to me and were like, have you watched Road to Perdition? And I replied, yeah, we should do that. And you were like, I've never seen it. So why the, <laughs> yeah. why the hell did you, uh, did you come up with this? I don't know. I think I, I was, uh, it just came to me randomly and I yeah, had never seen it. And I think I re- re- remember hearing something vaguely once about it involving a father and a son. And I, yeah, I just kind of thought, I'll spark up a conversation with Dom. Hey, Dom, have you ever seen Road to Perdition? And th- th- a few days later, here we are. God, what a story. It's a great story. End it of is. podcast. Thanks for <laughs> yeah. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Yeah, I think I saw this movie the first time, and only time before this, probably around 2005, I think. The movie came out in 2002. And there must have been a point around 2005 where I was just devouring as much gangster-related culture, movies, books, anything that I could dig up. Like, if it had to do with the Costa Nostra or even, like, the Irish stuff never really appealed to me, like, in in the same way. Like, um, what's the Coen Brothers one? Um, With... um, with Irish gangsters. Yeah, Cohen Brothers, Irish gangsters. Oh, uh, has the, the 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 poster is uh, uh the main character who's the guy from um that other movie that's name I can't remember the name of. We're doing really well today. Yeah, standing in um in a forest in autumn time. It's like it's like Finnegan. It's not Finnegan. What is it? I, I don't want to say Finnegan because that's just an Irish name. <laughs> that's a really generic Irish name. Yeah. 
So much so that that was the name of our Irish lecturer at uni. <laughs> it was. That's probably why I'm thinking about it. Oh, there was a blinky noise then. Sorry, that came from my device. I'll be sure to mute that from now on. <laughs> Thank you, Ramon. Gaffs and goofs. It begins with um, F, though. And you're not talking about Fargo, obviously. No. You're talking about Miller's Crossing? Miller's Crossing, that's right. Yeah. That famous Irish name beginning with F, Miller. Miller. Yes. Yeah, yeah Miller's, first name. Miller's Crossing is another gangster movie that's good, but it never quite satisfied the gangster itch for me mainly because they weren't italian i think and okay so you're um, on a big like you're on a big godfather kick and yeah anything with in. yeah you know that that kind of thing when you think about like all-time gangsters you're like ah it, you know it's the mafia it's the yakuza these days it's the cartel no one's like oh the irish you know what i mean <laughs> Unless you're a big fan of Scorsese's The Departed. Or Gangs of New York, I guess. Gangs of New York, yeah. yeah. Oh, Scorsese, he's all about those Irish gangsters. There you go. All right, maybe I'm... But I'm more of a Goodfellas than a Departed guy. Oh, sure, you know, that's, yeah. That's just what I'm... Yeah. Ah, oh, Scorsese. But we're not talking about Scorsese today. Dave. Sorry. We're, we're talking about Road to Perdition. Um, which, I yeah, I, I saw when I was really into other gangster stuff and was like, yeah, it's pretty good, but I wasn't looking for this father and son relationship. I was looking for crime. And um, it was really interesting revisiting this this week because I kind of came with it with a new approach because it's based on a graphic novel and I've read the graphic novel this week, which is something I've been meaning to do for ages. Um, and so when I watched the movie, I, I had my first impressions from like 10 years ago. Then um, my you know impressions just having read the book, and then I had new feelings about it as well. What did you think of the movie, watching it for the first time? I thought it was um, a really well put together film, and really well. It looked brilliant, and I, I liked all of the characters. It felt very Shakespearean mm. to me. Like it, I can you can totally imagine a Shakespeare play of like a an ill aging father of a of a powerful family and a son who is destined to inherit everything he's it's a bit godfathery a son who's destined to inherit it who's not really worthy of it mm. um and yet he, on the other side he has someone who's not his blood who he probably loves and respects more and treats him more as more like a son and then he, that conflict arises from that so yeah if did real it did feel very um very Shakespearean, but I yeah I definitely enjoyed the film throughout. Performances were great. I have some issues with the ending, okay. but perhaps we'll get to that when we get to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of, yeah some of the photography in it I thought was absolutely brilliant, and um, I'll let, we'll get into it when we uh, we get to those scenes because I'm I am I'm itching to talk about them. Can I just quickly say before you say about you how you were sort of voraciously uh, consuming gangster stuff mm. in culture. Is this around... I can't remember. Tell me when L.A. Noire came out. No, this is way before L.A. Noire. So L.A. Noire came out while we were at university. Oh, right. That's quite a bit after 2005. Quite a bit after this. Yes, yeah. So that I think L.A. Noire came out 2010, maybe 2011. Um, it seems it was a 360 PS3 thing, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. 2005, I would have been, what, 14, 15, I guess? And I yeah, think, and then Elena was twenty eleven. Yeah, right. yeah. So I think this is actually kind of a relevant family daddy issues kind of moment. I think um, 
was uh, we've spoken before about how our parents allowed us to consume media before. And you said when it came to music, you know, your parents were very much uh, of the mind of NWA. I don't even want to know what that stands for. Smash. (laughs) (laughs) Like that. Um, Whereas my family was more of the approach of you can watch an 18 when you're uh, like 13 or 14 years old. An 18 rated movie, that is. Um, you can watch an 18 rated movie when you're like 13 or 14 as long as we've seen it before and we think it's okay for you right? like a, a kind of a fairly reasonable approach and so we sat down I remember sitting down with my my mum and my stepdad for the first time and watching The Godfather in our uh, in our house uh, which is like three houses ago now in terms, in, for my family um, but just being just like overwhelmed and encapsulated in this world and just being like ah this is what the world is like (laughs) i don't want to see these other children's movies anymore this is this is what it's all about and everything about the uh the gangster movie um appealed to me in that moment and it wasn't so much the glory of doing crime because I've never been like a bad kid I think the most I ever stole was this is I'm gonna get myself in real fucking trouble now potentially (laughs) when I was about nine or ten we my group of friends at primary school had this obsession with bike tires like the the tires of our bikes right and you know okay. on you know on the what's it fucking called the bit that you unscrew the cap that you unscrew to pump gas into your bike tire yeah what those, yeah, yeah 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 we became obsessed with the giant like 16 wheeler lorries now they couldn't have been that big but they seemed that big at the time <laughs> but the the, the 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 lorries that would deliver stuff to our local shop right the food store yeah because the huge lorries had to have really thick metal caps on their tires to stop the, the the gas from getting out of these huge fucking chunky tires and we became obsessed with the idea of we should steal these while the guy is in the shop so we could put them on our bikes because then our bikes have these like gorgeous blue kind of uh, tires on so the most crime I ever embarked on was like unscrewing these things from tires so I could put them on my bike right you did that shit? Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. In Timsbury. Timsbury, Somerset. You're bad. Anthony Stewart Head from Buffy the Vampire Slayer lived there. Johnny Depp at one point, pre-abuse, you know, lived there. That was small village in oh, yeah. Bath and Bath You, you and had me at uh, Anthony Head. What, he, what was, he was great. He was there for our village fate. We had to do some litter picking and then he gave us a signature. That was that was awesome. No way. Yeah. We I'm must have discussed this at some point before. I've um, never heard this story. Lies. But for, in stuff. terms of crime, the most thing I ever did was when I was nine years old. Right. And sure. so when it was watching The Godfather, I wasn't like, oh, yeah, I really wish that I could be a criminal. It was more of the brotherhood, um, having people that will have your back no matter what, um, being willing to fight for your family and knowing your family is willing to fight for you like a code of honor the omerta you know keeping your silence for your fam to protect your family despite the pressures that the world might put on top of you like this all kind of stuff like massively appealed to me 
So then when I watch movies like Scarface, I'm like, oh yeah, Scarface is cool. And of course, Al Pacino is still amazing. But Scarface doesn't appeal to me in the same way that The Godfather does because it's just crime, you know? And it's a great yeah. movie, there's no doubt, but I'm not interested in cocaine and blowing people up with a machine gun, right? Like that's not the part of the gangster movie that appeals to me. And I think that's one thing that Road to Perdition actually does really nicely is it only uses violence to showcase the effect of violence, right? There's a lot of violent things that happen, but it's very rare for us to actually witness it. And I think that's a deliberate um, a deliberate approach of Sam Mendes, the famed Sam Mendes, uh, who directed <laughs> Road to um, who just really nailed this different approach to a, a gangster movie. I think I don't know what your thoughts were of Sam Mendes's work on this. I think you're you're right. It was this for like a different kind of approach to, to the gangster movie. Because there were it felt like there was no glory in this lifestyle at all. In in this life, like no, no one seem nobody at all seems to be enjoying their life who's embroiled in this and they they constantly talk about um well paul newman's character especially talks about how they made their choice and you know they're not getting into heaven this is the life they chose this is it um and even though uh, daniel craig's character who's the son the who's bound to inherit this family he's it's obviously a dickhead but he doesn't seem so super excited about his future he calls himself the future of the family and the business but it's it's just a play it seems like just a play for power and ego i don't no one in this film like i said feels like they are happy yes yeah yeah i think that's that's really true um the only people i would say are are happy in this are um the wife who is played by uh, jennifer jason, jennifer jason Lee, Lee. i think yeah mm. She's happy, and the two children are happy, Michael and, and Peter. At the beginning, at the at the very beginning of, the, they're the boys. The boys seem to be yeah. They yes. seem quite I, carefree. I, I think the reason that they are happy and that Annie, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character, are happy, is because they are protected from the truth, of the gangster world right they're there they go to the we see them go to family events like funerals and wakes and i presume weddings and things as well but that's the extent of their um of their involvement within crime they are untainted by by the the dark reaching claws of of that criminal life until it until it arrives literally at their doorstep and when it does well we should get into the plot um, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'd, yeah. I don't. I don't feel like Annie is a is oblivious at all. I think I can. I don't. Yeah. I think she knows the nature of her husband's work, Tom Hanks's character. Um. I think she knows what he does, but I do get the sense that they've never spoken about it explicitly. Yes. It's um, out out of sight, out of mind, kind of. It's out of sight, and she knows. And Mike explains. Uh, Tom Hanks's character explains that they had nothing and. Mr. Rooney, the Paul Newman's character, sort of look after them, brought them in, and it feels like um, Annie is is aware that in payment of this, her husband has to do whatever it is that um, Mr. Rooney asked him to do, and 
it's uh, no one is under any illusions about who Mr. Rooney is or what mm. Mr. Rooney is. So if you work for him and you're an adult, you probably know what that person is doing for a living. Yeah. But it seems like the community is quite held together by by it. There's no sense that the town or the, yeah the community is poisoning itself. It does feel like there is a, a kind of a a structure in place that benefits everybody. Not not that it really goes into details, but I just got that sense of it. And it's only at that wake near the beginning of the movie where one of um, Mr. Rooney's guys has been killed and his brother stands up to say something at the wake and he begins to maybe elucidate mm, the you, nature yeah. of this family and this business and he gets silenced quickly that anyone shows any kind of dissent. Yeah. Yeah, the famed character actor Syrian Hins. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. Do you mean actor. Kieran Hines? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> he's he's awesome in, in everything. He's, great. he's he's brilliant in Rome. That's he, the main thing I think about when I think yeah. of Kieran Hines. Yeah. And then oh uh, god, he's just fantastic as Steppenwolf in Justice. I League. knew you were gonna bring up Steppenwolf. He doesn't even really need to be there. I think he just was just a voice. Really, he it? he walked in, he read some lines, and he left. That's gotta be it, right? Mm. Because he is an incredible actor, uh, like genuinely incredible. And I say that with no sarcasm or anything. Like one of my all-time great character actors. Yeah, I um, feel like he's a guy that I've I, every time I see him in something, I go, "Oh, brilliant!" Because yes. he's in this, and he he will always yes. do a good job. And I'm a bit annoyed I can't think of anything else that he's done. But yeah, at least in Rome. Yeah, that was well, that's, the first... that's the that's the thing, right? For me, this movie has an absolutely ridiculous cast, right? The yeah. cast of this movie is not huge. It's not like The Godfather, where there's about fifty thousand moving parts for you to for you to kind of keep track of. Yeah, the the cast is tight, but whoever the mm. casting director was for this movie has got Tom Hanks, Paul Newman, Jude Law at the peak of his powers daniel yep. craig rising up to the peak of his powers he's like a f- couple of years off bond at this point yep. stanley tucci uh kieran oh, hines is, yeah kieran hines as we mentioned jennifer jason lee um it's frankly a bananas cast and it is especially since a lot of these quality character actors have quite small roles i mean mm. especially jennifer jason lee she, yeah. she just has the tentpole wife character she barely has any lines and yet it's jennifer jason lee like what's she doing doing that role yeah and it's but like you said before about sam mendes this sam mendes i think this was his second feature wasn't it after american beauty so it's not like character actors would queue up to work with him that like a lot of the more famed directors get from their cast people just go yeah i'll do anything that he wants me to do i'll, I'll show up for 10 minutes and do one line and go that's fine but yeah so i don't know like you say casting director deserves a lot of credit and for the Oh, I was about to say something that I don't actually agree with. And I was going to say, and with the kids, mm-hmm. but I do have a few qualms with uh, the, the the main boy, Michael with Sullivan, Superman. Mike Jr. Oh, yeah. He's young Clark Kent he's in Man Super- of Steel, isn't he? No, he's, he's modern day Clark Kent. In Man of Steel? No, in CW. In the CW TV shows, Supergirl, oh. Arrow. This is Superman. Yeah, that's right. I've not watched it, but I've seen. I'm only got when they announced who was cast. I remember seeing that. Yeah, he is Superman. And that's, oh wow, he's yeah. all grown up. 
I know, it's crazy. But that was one thing, because I, I didn't realise until his name came up. And I was like, I know that guy. I, and I thought, who is he? Who do I know him from? And I'm like, oh, it's fucking... He's the best Superman for a long time, actually. Is he really? And that was one thing that I... is because they, they write his Superman character correctly. Right, like Henry Cavill is a great Superman, as we've discussed before. Henry Cavill yeah. is great, but he's written poorly. And mm. the Tyler, I don't know how to pronounce his surname. Hochlin? Yeah, I'm going to say Tyler Hochlin. Um, his, okay. his Superman on the CW is written well. So he's got like stuff that he can, I say written well. He's written well for what he's in. So like yeah. he, he does a, gr- a good performance and he's good. He's really good in the role. Um, there was one thing I kept kind of keeping my eye, my eye out for this in this movie is are there moments in this movie where I can see a young Clark Kent okay and that there's this one moment in particular that I was like that's Clark Kent but we'll we'll kind of we'll, yeah we can get onto that a little bit uh, later on but yeah sure okay. um, amazing amazing cast um just in, just in general um so should we start going through the story yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. I'm ready to go. So, yeah. So the, the the basic plot of the movie is we have Tom Hanks as uh, Mike Sullivan, Michael Sullivan Sr., and Superman as Michael <laughs> Sullivan Jr., uh, father and son, uh, Mike, Tom Hanks. I'll just call them Tom Hanks and Superman from now on, just to keep it clear. Um, <laughs> okay, that won't confuse me at all. Yes. But that's fine. Yeah. Uh, Tom Hanks is married to Jennifer Jason Lee and has two children. His children are Superman and Peter. You can really Peter is the is the boy one from Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events. God, this I, is I don't, this the is movie a version with Jim Carrey and Jude Law again. Oh, connections. Ooh. Ooh, spooky. Yeah, and Tom Hanks, uh, as we have mentioned before, is uh, like a mob enforcer. I guess he's the 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 go to guy for uh, for Paul Newman's. Uh, John Rooney John Rooney, Paul Newman is this uh, this gangster who really controls the town he controls the whole the comings and goings and all business kind of flows through him um, he has a son called Connor Rooney played by Daniel Craig who is shown to be a bit of a fuck up and um, we, we get the idea that we, we start at a wake really, we op- open the, on a wake with um, uh, the whole family's there, Tom Hanks, Superman, Jennifer Jason Leigh, and, and Peter, and they've all gone to this this uh, this wake, and Superman <laughs> gets uh, is is shown to be in a really strong family relationship with Paul Newman, and we get to see this family structure unravel where you have father and son we have a father and son connection between tom hanks and and superman and peter and then the relationship between paul newman and and tom hanks and then daniel craig as well there's a a number of father and son triangles that are built in this movie which is really interesting we have the two children of tom hanks and then the two children of of paul newman as well like how did you feel the those relationships showed themselves at the beginning of the film it, uh, comparatively or or individually? Oh well, let's do both. We've got time. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, when we first see uh, Tom Hanks is when 
um, his when Michael comes up to you know, goes up to his bedroom to say dinner's ready or whatever, and we get a sense immediately get a sense of kind of a stoic sort of father figure. Hmm. Um, he he doesn't really say anything to his son beyond like thanks for telling me dinner's ready and I'll be down in a second. And they sit at the dinner table and they say grace and they eat fairly quietly. And then when they get they're on the way to the wake, Tom Hanks gives um, Michael a little. Gl- a glare and says, "I don't want to see you any because he has they play dice and he's like, yeah. this is awake, so don't let me see them dice." Um, so just but merely by the lack of any kind of affection or a hug. I know this is set in nineteen thirty one, so maybe you know times are different, <laughs> and uh, and fathers were meant to be firm figures to their mm-hmm. sons and not particularly affectionate. But then, like you say, when they arrive at the wake, Paul Newman's character is very welcoming and affectionate to Tom Hanks's kids, to his boys. Mm. He gives them both a big hug and he pretends to forget which one's which and they laugh and then they sort of go off to play a game together. To play dice. And meet, to play dice, exactly, which yeah. Tom Hanks told him not to. Yeah. But you can tell that when Paul Newman says, I've got some business to attend to with these two boys, Tom Hanks kind of... does like a, he almost He does like a raise of the, almost like a comical roll of the eyes, like... Oh, yeah, and I and because I didn't know anything about the story, I thought that this was a father grandfather relationship, mm-hmm. and they because he uh, Tom Paul Newman embraces those boys as if he is their grandfather, and they go off and have fun and joke and gamble and um seem really yeah seem really tight and and like a family. The whole event feels very familial, like every guest there is probably just a part of the business, but in that kind of mob way. Like we, like I remember seeing in The Godfather, if you work for the business, you're considered part of the family, and that's just how you'll be treated. Whereas, I think at, dur- during the wake or before the wake itself, you don't see Daniel Craig and his father Paul Newman's character interact at all. Um, but our introduction to Daniel Craig's character is Michael going upstairs to um, John Rooney's office and. Connor Rooney's just lying out on the couch smoking and basically just dismisses Michael like leave me alone I'm busy when he's just lying there having a cigarette so although we don't see Dan- uh, Daniel Craig's character doing anything particularly nefarious we immediately get the sense that he's detached from the family he's not mingling he's nowhere near the family nowhere near his dad and he's kind of rude to kids <laughs> that, that gives us another sort of immediate um sign that this is not going to be someone that we're going to grow attached to in a meaningful way yeah and we get a, a moment as well at the wake where tom hanks sits down with paul newman and they begin to play the piano together as well yeah and they have they have one they have one hand each they're playing in sync and we can see that this is a, a bond between these two where clearly this isn't the first time they've sat down to, to play this song together yeah, and Daniel Craig, Paul, like Paul Newman's actual son, is watching on with a, a smile on his face. But as you yeah, said, before, almost uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable watch smile. smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. It's like it's almost a smile that the Joker would wear, right? It's like a, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because you're thinking it. Well, yeah, because if say you um, a man sees his dad playing the piano and a t- with a trusted friend sat beside him and they do a duet together, you might expect that character to smile and like, isn't that nice? That's my dad and that's someone he cares about. 
this is good but you can tell in Daniel Craig's performance that that isn't the kind of smile that he's smiling and we even have the opportunity for the film to show us that this isn't a normal uncomfortable a normal comfortable smile when Peter Tom Hanks's youngest son sort of tugs at his trousers or his shirt and says why are you always smiling and then he sort of leans down really close to him and goes because it's all so fucking hysterical and just walks off again giving us plenty of um clues as to what uh, this character's arc is probably going to be or mm. lack of arc but yes yeah it's a really important moment that establishes for us as the audience the real father and son is tom hanks and paul newman the, there may be a biological yeah. bond with daniel craig but that's not what tom hanks believes and it's not what paul newman believes either and it creates that kind of power dynamic that you were mentioning earlier on, where although Daniel Craig is set to inherit the family business, I would not be at all surprised if things had continued as they were, if Daniel Craig would have been eventually overlooked. And yeah. Paul Newman had gone, I have to hand the business to the person who I know, who I trust. And it's very clear at the beginning of the movie that Paul Newman trusts Tom Hanks. And um, uh, we get the the bit of the wake where um, Julius Caesar from Rome goes up. That's who he plays. Yes. Julius Caesar, I couldn't remember. And that's why he's so important in your memory, on your memory of Rome, because he's fucking Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. Yes. But Julius Caesar from Rome, uh, or Steppenwolf from Justice League, pick, pick or choose, um, goes up to uh, to give a speech remembering his brother. Because it's it's his brother's wake that they're at, and Paul Newman has has given a kind of funny, a funny talk where he says, "I didn't know him so well, um, but here's a funny little anecdote." And he says, "Now yeah. over to Steppenwolf from Justice League to give a more emotional, <laughs> uh, a more emotional." Uh, yeah, it's with he's like I'm, I'm sure with much more poetry than I could mm, muster or something like that. Yeah, and so to and begin, then he yeah, then he steps up and reads from a piece of paper, <laughs> so yes. it doesn't really seem like he's speaking from his heart. No. Well, yeah, to begin with, Steppenwolf from Justice League gives his kind of uh, eulogy for his brother, but then turns his attention to Paul Newman and is, says something like, you run this town like a god runs the earth. And then Tom Hanks rushes forward and is like, ha ha, you've had too much to drink and kind of carries yeah, him off. But that the, whole, the whole congregation immediately like applauds him like mm. they can see that he's been cut short they can see that he was about to say something that he shouldn't mm. so they all kind of band together to save him really yeah the, the hundred people are there all go yes well well done yes great speech quick yeah. get him out there get him out of there get yeah. him out of there but both paul newman and tom hanks after they carry him out are very willing to be like you know you you overstep the mark here don't do it again but it was your brother's funeral and we, we we understand you're upset that he's died. And we all know that we killed him. Everyone there yeah, probably everyone knows. knows that, that it was um, Paul Newman's, you know, Paul Newman's gang that, that killed that killed his brother. Yeah, like Kieran Hines in his pre-read speech makes a point of saying he wasn't... Like, he, he starts by reading out all of his brother's flaws. And everyone kind of just smiles and chuckles. Yeah, yeah that's Danny. And then he goes, but he was brave and he never told a lie. And that's why he really pointedly says that. Um, and you even, yeah, and you can immediately tell that that is relevant somehow. Yeah. yeah. So then Paul Newman says to, uh, to Daniel Craig, uh, I think maybe even Daniel Craig says, I'll go and talk with him. 
And when Paul, when he says that, Paul Newman's like, take Tom Hanks with you. Yeah, take and, Mike with you. Yeah, yeah. And Daniel Craig's like, I don't need to take him. But Paul Newman is insistent. Yeah. Take take Michael. Or take Mike. Yeah, take Mike. Because that's the... We have Mike, Michael Sullivan Sr., Michael Sullivan Jr. And the way they distinguish from them within the movie is Tom Hanks is called Mike. Uh, Superman is called Michael. And that's yeah. really the like that everyone refers to them as Mike and Michael throughout, and that's how we yeah how we can kind of tell the difference. But Paul Newman trusts Tom Hanks completely through throughout this film. Um, so when they go to to have a word with uh, Steppenwolf from Justice League later on, um, we know that Tom Hanks has been sent there because he's kind of the the level head in that way. Yeah, he's there to keep an eye on Daniel Craig because his own father doesn't trust that he'd handle it yeah. effectively. Yeah. And then we... This is when we start to get the kind of crossover between the, the father and son storylines as well in the way that this kind of story starts starts to build up where um, Michael, Superman, has been having the conversation with, with his brother Peter about what, what does dad actually do? Mm. Right, like, oh, he works for Mr. Rooney. Yeah, but doing what? And it's like, well, it, we know it's dangerous because he's got a gun. Yeah. And we know Mr. Rooney is a good man and because we've always been told that he's a good man. And we know that it produces a lot of money. But while Michael is saying all of these things about his father, he's reading, uh, like, a pulp children's story about cowboys and criminals. It's, and, it's the Lone Ranger. Is it the Lone Ranger? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, his the yeah, there's a, a mask over the, the guy's face, and he's created this idea within his own mind. He even says, "Well, sometimes father does work for the president because he's yeah, a war the... hero." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he's got this image within his mind that whatever missions, because he refers to them as missions, whatever missions uh, Tom Hanks is doing, they must be important. And if they're dangerous, then it's exciting because he carries a gun, and so he yeah. sneaks inside the car to see what it is that that his father actually does when he goes out at night and what happens next day oh gosh um so yeah daniel craig and, and tom hanks go to meet with uh julius caesar in his warehouse which is like his part of this business something to do with alcohol there's barrels everywhere um just to have a chat but tom hank mike makes a point of getting his tommy gun out of the back of the car so but as he gets out of the car carrying his tommy gun he says to daniel craig we're just going to talk to him right yeah so you get a sense that um yeah tom hanks is there to be the sensible one but he's either there he needs to be intimidating in some way or maybe he's not expecting this to go <laughs> to go the way it should so um what i really love about this scene is that once um tom hanks and daniel craig enter the warehouse we follow Michael, as he creeps out of the car, sort of get no, he creeps out of his hiding place underneath the bench in the back seat, and he gets in the front seat, and he watches them go in, and there's a second's deliberation of him going, "Shall I go in or shall I stay?" And he sort of thinks about it, and he can't help but he has to go. So he gets out of the car in the driving rain, finds a little spot where he can peek through the wall, and watches what's going on, and the entire sequence is shot from his point of view through a little like almost like a mouse hole in the bottom of the wall where he's lying in the rain. Um, and from his perspective, we have the uh, an opening into the warehouse and then his dad, Tom Hanks, ends up standing directly in front of that hole. 
So he's basically looking through his dad's legs and almost watching it from what would be Mike's point of view as well. Um, the whole yeah, the whole conversation goes that way with um, with Connor kind of just reiterating to Finn, uh, Julius Caesar, uh, like we understand it was your brother's wake, things were said. Let's just keep it, keep it all civil, keep it in the family. Everything will be fine. And Finn seems to be like, yeah, you're right, okay. And just when Daniel Craig seems like he's done a good job of ironing over these creases, as he's about to leave, he goes something. This just some glib comment about his uh, Finn's brother Danny, who's just died. Like, and it would help if your brother wasn't such a fucking liar or something mm. like that. And that's when. Finn was like, my brother never told a lie, and he's gone. He's he's gone and double checked because you get the feeling that wait no, you get the information that Danny is thought to have stolen money from the family, and or at least money went missing, and he got the blame for it. And Finn, his brother, is explains that it, it couldn't have been him. I've double checked; all the numbers add up. It wasn't him. And this conversation seems to be um, just going back and forth. And Daniel Craig just, just just turns, pops him in the head, shoots him straight through the temple in a really great... Because, you, again, you're watching all this from Michael's point of view. You're watching it all go back and forth. It feels very theatrical, like you're watching mm-hmm. a stage play. And then right as Daniel Craig shoots his gun, we go to this amazing like slow-mo shot, which looks really high-tech for the time. And it makes me think of um, the kind of things that Sam Mendes went on to do with like 1917, like really visceral action. Um, and of course, a, a very short gunfight ensues where Finn's guys go to retaliate, but obviously Tom Hanks is there with this Tommy gun, just mows him down. So in the the space of four seconds, say, Michael has witnessed his quote-unquote Uncle Connor, which is what Daniel Craig's character asked him to call him, his Uncle Connor murder a man, execute a man, and then his dad mow down a couple of guys. And he's there, he stays in the moment long enough for at least to hear that his dad say, Jesus Christ, Connor, what the hell was that? Like mm. Tom Cranks didn't want that to happen, wasn't expecting that to happen. He's perturbed, but then they both notice someone is watching through the wall. Um, Michael panics, goes to try to run away and gets, runs up to a, a gate that he can't get through. Um, so And Tom Hanks gives chase. And there's a great a great moment where it's dark, it's raining. He can, his first... He acts this so well, you can tell exactly what he's thinking. And there's another moment later on where you can tell exactly what he's thinking just by his silent acting. He says, no, he doesn't say anything, sorry. He just, you can tell he goes, oh, it's just a kid initially. And then one second later, that expression changes to, oh shit, I know who that is. And then he says, Michael, and asks him if he's hurt and etc. cetera. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I love that bit of Tom Hanksism where... He just he wears it so well on his face, especially in a role that I can't remember ever seeing him play a morally dubious character before. He always plays like an everyman and someone you're supposed to root for. And I think the fact that they cast Tom Hanks in this, I think is actually very clever um, in in taking the audience back and forth on the central question of the movie, which is said right at the very beginning in voiceover from Michael, the very opening shot is Michael telling the story of what's about to happen in the movie. Um, What does he say? He says, 
there are there are many stories about Michael Sullivan. Some say he was a decent man. Some say there was no good in him at all. And blah 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 blah. This is our story. Um, so I think the the central question of this is: Is Michael Sullivan good, or is he bad? In light of everything that he does, and casting Tom Hanks in that role is brilliant because we're not used to seeing him murder people. We're not used to see him, you know, be a killer. And yet, because it's him, we have a kind of swayed opinion about what his true morality might be because we know it's Tom Hanks. We we, we would never believe that he was truly evil. And I think that's entirely intentional. Yeah, I think this is uh, the first moment to really bring up the graphic novel as well. Is In the comparison of how the, the movie and the graphic novel show Michael Sullivan as a character. And in the graphic novel, he's referred to, like, his uh, gangster nickname is the Angel of Death. And uh, the reason that uh, in, in the book, again, the character's called John Looney, not John Rooney... Because John Looney is based on a real gangster who was betrayed by one of his enforcers, who wasn't called Michael Sullivan. But John Looney uh, has this character called the Angel of Death, this enforcer, Michael Sullivan, that he sends around. And when Michael Sullivan shows up, it's kind of like John Wick, right? Where yeah. where he shows up and everyone's like, oh my god, hi Mike, like that. And they're all kind of on their guard because they know this guy's a fucking killer. And yeah. The, the graphic Baba novel, Yeager. yeah, yeah, exactly. The graphic novel does a big difference in the way that it um, portrays Michael Sullivan, in that it will sh- it shows you the violence in the book. A large mm. amount of the book is dedicated to the violence that Michael Sullivan, well, the Mike Sullivan, the Angel of Death, as they they call him in the book, uh, enacts on others. Um, where he's like massively outnumbered and he'll take a gun off somebody and then just wipe out the entire room. Like like he's a, a, a killer and, and a man to be feared. Whereas in contrast with the casting of Tom Hanks, like you're saying, it works for this movie version in a way because the movie doesn't want us to think of Michael Sullivan the same, well, Mike Sullivan, the way that it wants, the, the, the book does. The book wants to wants us to see everything that he's capable of, which really does heighten this uh, question of his morality. Whereas the morality of Mike Sullivan within the movie is, yeah, he's a killer, but is he all bad? And the fact that he's played by Tom Hanks goes a long way to lead us to trust him because he's not... You could say a lot of things about Tom Hanks. Incredible actor. Yes. Fine. But the two things he's known for is being an incredible actor and the world's loveliest guy. Kind of at the yeah. same time, right? It's like it's like Dave Grohl again. Like Dave Grohl, he's, you know, the world's greatest rock star. And at the same time, the world's nicest rock star. And you couldn't put Dave Grohl in like a, a role that requires him to be doing drugs or violent or something. Because you're like, oh, it's Dave Grohl. Yeah, he's, he's, he's lovely. And that is part of my problem with the casting is that I never really feel that Tom Hanks is a threat to anybody when he's in the room, which is a contrast to the book, right? And it, because in the book, this angel of death walks into the room and everybody has like a, a tingle go down their spine. They suddenly sit to attention. You can imagine the, uh, the, the hairs standing on their arms as they're like, 
I have to be really careful with what I say here because this guy is like like this guy's John Wick and if I say the wrong thing you know he's going to murder me with a pencil whereas in the uh, in the movie and I think it is does work in some ways to the movie's benefit because he's not John Wick he is vulnerable he's a regular guy that, that takes serious damage but that's a big difference you cast Tom Hanks you don't get this killing machine you get Tom Hanks delivering an incredible performance doing some cool gangster action stuff but you're never thinking oh he's going to whip out you know he's going to dual wield some pistols in a minute and you know blow Al Capone away or <laughs> or anything like that um yeah I yeah. do feel like that that I do feel that was intentional because I think the film is framed in a very realistic way yeah there is there is no like hyper exuberant action sequences in this and um yeah thinking about because yeah like you say everyone knows who he is even when later on when he goes to chicago goes to the big city he goes to visit a mob boss there the men on the door are like oh hey mike yeah like he's got a reputation everywhere everywhere he goes and the only um if we if we're trying if the film is trying to show us how capable he is the first bit of violence we see is him mowing down a couple of guys with a tommy gun like yeah, off you know, screen that essentially off screen yeah, yeah. and yeah. we don't that isn't super impressive he's you know he's in the right place he's got the better weapon it's only a couple of guys easy so the only the first time we really see how effective he is his baba yaga moment is when he goes after um after daniel craig knows that his son witnessed him kill someone and the inciting incident of the plot occurs from there um mike is sent to just do his normal job, be an enforcer, go to a guy who owes the family money and ask for money. Um, who, and there's a betrayal there, which we'll maybe get into in more detail. But there's a betrayal there and um, there's like a him and uh, the person he's there to collect from both see a gun and it becomes a case of... Yeah. Both, it's like a quick draw moment and Mike's like quick as a flash, grabs a gun, bam, kills that guy, turns around, bang, kills the other guy, one shot each. And that's the first time you go, oh, yeah, shit, he is, he's good. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, dangerous, yeah. Yeah, but you're right, you couldn't task, cast, sorry, cast Tom Hanks, and instead of that scene having one guy behind a desk and one guy against the wall, he goes, pam, pam, if that scene is John Wick, there's a guy behind a desk and there's eight guys around the room, and he shoots one, rolls over the desk, shoots a few more, does some jujitsu, shoots another guy, and, yeah, you don't get that with Tom Hanks, and I feel that that was intentional which the film I think is trying to keep us in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the difference with the graphic novel is that the graphic novel in that scene has multiple people in the room. There you go. So when he, when he, uh, when he kills them, it's yeah, much more of a, Oh God, this guy is like, um, he's not just a killer because Mike Sullivan played by Tom Hanks is a killer, mm. right? Like he, he is a murderer. There's no, there's no doubt about that, but he's not, um, a step above uh like another top level he's like a top level mob enforcer no doubt but you could yeah, but imagine... it's not supernatural anyway, yes yeah. yeah yeah he's yeah not john wick-esque yeah well that as we've kind of gotten onto that bit it's worth mentioning when this betrayal happens because daniel craig notices of course that that uh michael sullivan jr superman uh has, has witnessed this crime and says to tom hanks can he keep a secret and uh tom hanks says he's my son and as in, like, that's all he has to say, right? He's mm. my son. And uh, Daniel Craig says, well, that's good enough for me. 
And we, for a minute, it seems like, well, you know, he witnessed a crime, but um, that's going to be the end of it. Until the next day, where uh, Tom Hanks, well, where Daniel Craig is forced to apologise to his father for this murder that, that took place, where they killed mm. Julius Caesar. And he has to apologise not just to his father, but all of these other like mob officials, accountants, these important people, they're not just thugs. They're like the people, you know, the board. They're the higher ups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got Paul Newman at one end of the long table and Daniel Craig at the other end, supposed to be these like heads of the family, this father mm. and son in this father and son business. And Paul Newman just rips him apart in front yeah, of all of these other people. Embarrasses completely emasculates him, yeah. Yeah. Completely embarrasses him like what do you mean you want to apologize? Yeah, like, Dad, I'd like to apologize. Yeah. You would like to apologize? Yeah. Try again. Yeah. Like it, it's it's such uh again, um if Daniel Craig was Michael Jr.'s age, that's the kind of way you would talk to him to mm. put him in his place. But this is a full grown man being treated like a child in front of a room full of very important, very powerful people. And Mike, who sort of sat against against the wall because he's not part of the board, he's not really part of the family, he is just staff. And yeah, what I after that scene, which is great. And I'm, I think every time Paul Newman is great in this movie, I'm going to say, and Paul Newman was great because he's great. Every scene he's in, he's brilliant. That mm-hmm. speech at the wake at the beginning, he's brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, he's brilliant here. But then, the, the all the after Daniel Craig's character gets emasculated, uh, the whole everyone gets up and leaves, including John Rooney and including Mike, and Daniel Craig's left on the table by himself. And in the background, Paul Newman leaves the room with his arm around Mike, as the ultimate kind of visual symbol of affection between mm-hmm. those two after he just ripped his actual son to shreds and showed no love or affection for him whatsoever. Yeah. And so this is when Daniel Craig makes his move. Tom Hanks yeah. has been sent off to kind of to collect some debts as uh, Paul Newman has has said like well now we've lost Julius Caesar, you know, all that money's gone. All the money he was supposed to bring in is gone because he's dead. And he said, now we need to go out and get more money. And Tom Hanks is like, well, just tell me who to go and see. And I'll do. Yeah. So Tom Hanks goes to his car to get in. Daniel Craig brings him a note and says, I'm really sorry about that. I am sorry about last night. Like, I, I hope you boys okay. You know, I'm sorry. I, I, I messed up. Tom Hanks is like, ah, you know, it, it happens. We kill people. We're killers. It's not a big deal. But Daniel Craig gives him a handwritten note. and says, this is from my dad. This is from Paul Newman to give to the guy you're, you're collecting from. He's like, all right, great. So when Tom Hanks gets there, he says to the guy, here's a note from my boss. Um, this this thug, random guy owns a brothel, um, opens up the note, and the note reads something along the lines of, kill Sullivan and all your debts are paid. And you get this great moment of eye contact back and forth between Tom Hanks, the guy behind the desk, Tom Hanks, the guard, who like two minutes ago was saying to Tom Hanks, oh, do you think you could get me a job? Like, you're really famous. And if you put a good, a good word in for me, you know, that could be really big, big for my career. Tom Hanks like, yeah, 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 sure. But now they're, they're looking at each other, knowing the violence is about to come down. And when Tom Hanks realizes that he's been betrayed, that they're going to try and kill him, like you were saying earlier on, he snaps into action. Bam, bam. That's it. And he tries to call home. Yeah, he tries to call home, but he he can't. And we kind of cut back and forth between 
Mike Sullivan and Michael Sullivan, but because Michael Sullivan, Superman, saw this murder take place the day before, the violence of his father has seeped into his school life and he's caught in a fight with just another kid in Catholic school. And we see instantly that the the path of violence that the son might be going on in imitating his father. But because he beats the crap out of this kid in school, he's not there when Daniel Craig appears at the family house to, uh, well, to, to murder uh, the, the mother and, uh, and Peter. But he murders, Wait. he murders Peter thinking that it's Michael at, at yeah. that point. Um, but Michael arrives back at the house uh, late, sees Daniel Craig comes out, and then um, kind of yeah hides hides from him, makes sure that he isn't seen, but then rushes in to see his mother and his brother murdered, and just stays there in the dark in the house until Tom yeah. Hanks comes back, panicked, knowing that something is wrong because he's been betrayed. The phone line's dead. Uh, he he rushes back and then just sees his son sat there, and the camera stays on. Uh, on Michael sat at the table as Tom Hanks runs up the stairs and we hear probably his only emotional cry throughout the whole movie is just get this guttural like ah moment as he finds his wife and and son murdered it's a really a really powerful moment and again great directing here yeah, this I is the movie it's... we're going to mention directing the most i think because there's a yeah, bunch I think the, of shots the, the choices uh, yeah, in this are are really brilliant, and the I don't know we'd like we should shout out the cinematographer as well because the photography in it is brilliant, the lighting it is yeah. lovely. Like when um, the bit uh, yeah when Daniel Craig has just killed um, Annie and Peter, and he's leaving the house, it's exactly the same time that Michael yeah. is running up to the yeah. house, and they're standing either side of the glass front door. It's dark apart from on the inside of the house. So Michael's looking in. The man who's just killed his his mum and brother appears on the other side of the glass and sort of takes his his hat and his scarf off of his face, revealing that it's Daniel Craig's character. But from Daniel Craig's perspective, he can't see out because the inside inside lights are on. All he can see is his reflection, and he sort of just like straightens his hair, catches his breath, and so Michael is just staring up at him. Can see him plain as day, and then so again, this like great photography. Mm. Um, and yeah, so he Michael ducks away as Daniel Craig leaves, and as you say, when when Mike comes back and just sees uh, Michael sat at the table in silence, there's no dialogue. There's just a look between them, a bit of relief in Mike's face and seeing that Michael's alive. But it's like, well, if Mike's Michael, if Michael's alive, and the house feels like this, what else has happened? And that's why when he runs upstairs, and yeah, you get that, get that guttural scream, which we didn't get from Michael. Mm-hmm. Michael, a day after witnessing three murders in the space of two seconds and getting in a fight at school, he walks up the stairs, looks in the bathroom where the bodies of his mum and brother are, and he just walks in, and that's all we see. We don't see any kind of emotional or physical reaction to him. He's just, he's, he's muted. He's, uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? He's numb. Numb. He's numb to it now. Um, yeah, and I, I, I do like another Tom Hanksian moment is after that scream and then Michael decides to walk up the stairs to see and Mike is just sat in the corridor outside the bathroom having seen what he's seen and there's a moment where Tom Hanks looks up at Michael and I want to know if you if you sense this too 
is there is there half a second of him looking at Michael and going, this is your fault, before what I think is is the obvious part afterwards is when he looks back away, looks down and thinks, no, no, this is my fault. This has always been my fault. I This is my life and no blame can be put on Michael for this. Or do you think that was just a look and then he just... He just, he's just sad. Do you feel like he blames Michael for, at all, like for a nanosecond? I think it's really interesting that you pick up on that because this is one of the, the great things with, with film and especially with acting is when an actor's choices can lead you down these different paths, especially in an yeah. emotional moment. Because his this is one moment of the film, potentially the only moment of the film, where the character doesn't know what to do or what to feel. And every other moment of the film, Mike Sullivan, Tom Hanks, knows exactly what he's doing, right? He's like, we're going to go here, I'm going to speak to this person, and this is why, right? Then maybe sometimes it works for him, sometimes it doesn't. But either way, he knows exactly what he's going to do. And this is the one moment where he sat there, where his character is lost, for this this tense and if you you wonder if michael hadn't appeared and he hadn't had that moment to go no this is on me this my life of violence brought violence into the home how, if michael had also died how long would he have sat there for and it's because michael is there that he has that reason to go right we're getting up and we're, we're leaving but there's a really yeah. nice comparison here with the, this moment in the movie and this point in the book. Um, because it's, again, same deal. Daniel Craig character in the book murders the family in the same way. Um, and as we, as we learn uh, in, in both, it hasn't been called for by Paul Newman's character, essentially. The, Paul Newman has nothing to do with this. It's just Daniel Craig being a, a, a psychopath. Up. Yeah. yeah. And... Um, there's a, a really brilliant moment in the book where um, in the, the captions we have uh, Michael kind of monologuing as the older father. That carries on more than it does in the movie. But he says, I never really saw my father be emotional or be an emotional man. But that night after they were murdered, he picked up Peter, he picked up my brother and he put them into bed. And it's this really beautiful moment where the the father carries his wife and his child, tucks them into bed at night, says, kiss your your mother goodnight and kiss your brother goodnight. And then they leave the house and you get the same line in both where Tom Hanks takes uh, takes his son outside and says, this is not our home anymore. It's an empty building. And like everything in it is empty for us. We are not coming back here. This is this is nothing to us anymore. And then they get in the mm. car and they leave. And that's it. There is no going home. Right? There is no going yeah. back again. This is it's an, an empty building with nothing but the past. And from here on out, we're we're only going forward on the road to perdition. <laughs> oh, well done. It doesn't say that, got in that, the got book. that in there. If it if it did say that in the book, you'd be like, well, this is not as good as it was it was going to be and throw it away. But no, yeah, yeah it's a, a it's a really awesome moment in in both of them. And it's it's very different in both the book and the movie, but it achieves that same that same emotional beat. Yeah. Cuz we don't uh, see we don't see Mike interact with um Annie or Peter in the no, film. No, we we never see He's them just, together, yeah. do we, I think. Yeah. We don't see that, no. So I was left wondering going, what is that? are they still just lying on the 
bathroom mm. floor or what. But I think the way that it's cut makes it feel like there's urgency. There's no time. Um, and I think Mike says in like the next scene, as soon as they figure out we're alive, they're going to come after us. So in that moment, he's probably just like, right, we need to get shit moving. Yeah. Um, but I love, there's a really, there's a, I love another, it's another, all the Paul Newman bits are probably my favourite bits of these of this film. Because um, that, I don't know if it intercuts, but from the bit of the house, we next see um, John Rooney and his son, Connor, Paul Newman and Daniel Craig. And Paul Newman's just found out what Daniel Craig's done. And he's like almost stomping towards him in their house. Mm-hmm. And Daniel Craig is just being like, I had to, he was going to, he was going to talk. And he, Daniel Craig is, probably a better actor than he's given credit for because with a lot of actors as soon as you go into a big franchise like James Bond no one takes you properly seriously anymore unless you can somehow inter- interject all of your franchise movies with really good dramatic performances but I think he is a much better actor than perhaps he's a yeah perhaps he gets credit for but he 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 looks like a 12 year old boy trying he, to explain he, to his he, dad he, what he crumples. in the previous scene he was a psychopathic murderer who was yeah. like the biggest threat on, on the face of the earth almost mm. and then the yeah. next scene he's there with his father an elderly man an actor who died like two years after they made this movie but daniel craig just he puts his arms over his head backs into the corner of the room and just cowers, allows yeah. yeah cowers yeah and allows this elderly man to beat him essentially yeah like, i love that bit he's mm. just like porn was like i curse the fucking day you were born, mm. I curse it. And he's like whacking him with every mm. with every beat. And yeah, Daniel Craig is just—he's not getting physically hurt, but he's he's carrying, he's getting hit, and he's emotional. Like he looks like a little boy crying. And but it's very telling at the end of that moment where Paul Newman hugs him. He lets out his frustration and his anger, but at the end of the day it's still his son and it, that in itself to me was like a this isn't good this is uh if this is a loyalty contest between how Rooney feels about his son and how he feels about his sort of surrogate son Mike he's gonna side with blood family all the way yeah to me it was a moment of he has no choice now and yeah, for, yeah. for years, Paul Newman has had this divided thing of, oh, I wish Tom Hanks was my real son. And I'm ashamed of Daniel Craig, who, you know, who's not the... He's not the man that Tom Hanks is. And there's a, a great bit, again, with in the book. And they, they, they bring it up in, in the movie as well, where Tom Hanks uh, says... Uh, is referred to as a man of honour. And he says the same about his son as well. My son is, he's my son. He's a man of honour. And that's a big contrast with Daniel Craig's character, who is, uh, who was taking all of the wrong lessons from this life of crime. Like we were saying before with The Godfather, yes, they are criminals. And yes, John Rooney is a, is a criminal. But he's also shown as someone who looks after family who, as we said, if you work with them, then you're regarded as family and you know that they're going to be there to support you unless you betray them because there is this honourable code that goes throughout it. And Daniel Craig is a dishonourable man in an honourable world. And Mm. everybody knows it about him as well. 
he is like the proverbial rat and he might not be like betraying people but you know one of these days his lack of honor is gonna lead his ambition astray and that's really the the kickstart for the, the whole movie is his lack of honor and his yeah well ambition getting too big for his boots thirst for power yeah. um to step out of his father's shoes that leads him down the wrong track and i think if if the movie was the other way around and tom hanks killed daniel craig and went back and said he went too far and he w- he, he was going to kill my family he was going to do everything and then i think that paul newman would have been like you know my son's dead but i understand where you're coming from because i tr- yeah. and he, he's kind of he's got he, one he's got another one he can just yeah, slide yeah. into his place he, he trusts tom hanks in a way that when yeah. daniel i don't he wouldn't have unloaded on tom hanks in the same way that he does daniel craig because he knows that if mike sullivan has killed somebody it's because he has to do it whereas when daniel craig does it it's because he enjoys it because he yeah and he says like when, the way paul newman says i curse the day you were born mm. it's it's saying every day of your life has been a pain in my ass yeah yeah like yeah. you've like this is not just you've made this is not your only fuck up and i'm angry this is just you've fucked up constantly over and over and over again and now you fucked up in the biggest possible way yeah and it there I'm, i can think of a couple of examples including the godfather of um powerful a powerful head of a family these usually i guess these are crime stories and then within his offspring who have been raised within this um powerful position they are they are spoiled to a certain degree so in the godfather sonny is is spoiled and to the point where he's like quick to anger he's got massive ego he, he thinks he is he's god's gift and then um the is it the oldest son who completely gets overlooked I can't, I can't remember his name fredo yeah like he has been spoiled to the point where he just lives a life of excess mm-hmm. takes advantage of his position again show and has little honor sunny having little honor because he cheat sleeps around on his wife as well mm-hmm. whereas michael is the rarity you know the one in out of three who lives an honorable life and therefore he is destined to inherit the great empire that his father who was also a great and honorable man built and we've mentioned john wick already this first john wick movie is the same where mm. Russian mob boss guy's son, Alfie Allen, is spoiled and a little shithead and thinks he can do anything he wants and ends up fucking up the worst possible way he could fuck up. Yeah. Which is killing John Wick's dog and taking his car. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, fucking hell. If Road to Perdition was about John Wick's dog, then it would be. Uh... To be honest, the movies aren't that dissimilar um, in, in general storytelling beats and, and tones, but. Um, Road to Perdition has um, more more class, I guess, than John Wick. I love John Wick. I'm not, I'm yeah. not going to say I don't love John Wick, but yeah, this is oh, me um, too. yeah that that similar uh, yeah similar idea. But you do get the idea that Mike Sullivan is Paul Newman's favorite son, right? Tom Hanks yeah. is the favorite son, um, but Connor Rooney, you know, Daniel Craig just yeah. has to, he he's he's blood and. Yeah, if and it, he's the only one, like the yeah. only actual blood son, unlike The Godfather, where he's got three to choose from and he <laughs> overlooks one because he's an idiot mm. and he goes to the next one because he, you know, at least he's strong and mm. and is focused. Um, you know, he's got some options, whereas John Rooney's like, 
I was, for whatever reason, I've only got one. And whatever happens, because this is, like we've said before, a, a, a world of honour and of looking after your family. There, There is no choice for him. Yeah. And he, he really wrestles with it later on, well, quite soon in, in the movie, where he, he knows he's got this real son on one side of a dispute and um, and Tom Hanks on the other and he's like god help me what am i supposed to do yeah his heart and his head are completely split yeah yeah well let's let's keep going with the plot because i think a lot of these things are going to make themselves more obvious as we go on as well because i think that from here for us actually it's quite easy because the plot goes on where tom hanks goes to chicago to meet with frank nitty another real life gangster he was yeah. like the, the second in command to, to Al Capone, who they actually shot a scene of this movie with Al Capone in it, but decided to remove him from the movie because they kind of wanted him to seem like more of an overarching threat, like this world of Al Capone. You don't need to see yeah. Al Capone in it. He's in, again, he's in the book, but they... they he's mentioned, him. yeah, a few times, but you just, just, just to know that this world, this film exists in that world... Mm-hmm. is enough to, for you to relate it to real stakes yeah. if you know if you've heard of Al Capone yeah yeah and so he goes to uh, to Frank Nitti who's played by Stanley Tucci and says and says to him the Tucci yeah says I've worked with you before you know how good I am you know my worth right you know my worth as an enforcer I will pledge myself to you if you remove your protection from from Daniel Craig Right, because he knows that now, now that um, Tom Hanks is out, he uh, everyone knows that Tom Hanks is going to fucking kill Daniel Craig. <laughs> right, like, yeah. like, everyone knows it. Daniel Craig killed his wife and his kid, and Tom Hanks is gunning for him, and uh, they all know it. And uh, so Tom Hanks goes to goes to Frank Nitti and says, "Remove your protection from him, because he's in hiding in Chicago." So remove you. You know, give him to me, and I am yours for for life. Mm. And um, the you again sets up this power dynamic, this this difference between them, of um, you know what what which sets about that scene that you're discussing, where um, Paul Newman has to choose now: is he going to just turn over his son and end the violence here, or is he going to risk more violence? to protect this son who murdered a, a, a woman and a child to settle his own petty hatred. Yeah. And yeah, this is kind of the, again, where the, the road, the road trip really begins, which is our relationship between Tom Hanks and, uh, and Superman <laughs> between, uh, <laughs> between Mike, Mike and uh, Michael Sullivan with the two of them on the car, on the rob from them, uh, on the run from the mob, um, father and son who have lost everything, can their relationship stand the strain? And how did you feel that the movie kind of balanced their changing relationship from when they start on the run to where they where they end up? It has. Um, it reminded me a little. Probably just because we watched it recently, it reminded me a bit of the the Act Two montage in Real Steel, mm-hmm. where we are. I think this film, of, not obviously. I think this film does it better, and it should. You know, if it feels, if we're talking about film, this feels more like a film. Real Steel is more like a movie, a popcorn mm-hmm. thing. You know, it's more about spectacle than it is about substance. But this film is, I think, very much about substance. And 
so yeah when when mike realizes that they're on their own he uh he knows that the only thing to do he can't do on his own so as much as he would doesn't want michael to get into the world that he's in he needs his help in order to to i don't know what get get revenge to end the end this to to reach perdition um so we have a similar kind of sort of montage sequence where um mike teaches michael how to be his getaway driver so that they can go around the banks where the chicago families have got dirty money and nickel their money um to force their hand give me daniel craig or i'll keep robbing your banks i'll keep taking i'll just keep taking your money yeah um so we have a sequence of very understated very classy very quiet bank robberies where tom hanks just walks in speaks to the bank manager goes i know that there's money here give me that money i'm not taking anyone else's money you know be cool um and i i, the I sat from up buffy. fuck you man i wanted to say that <laughs> i knew it when i saw him i knew you were gonna bring oh, it up i put it down damn mental it. back of my head mayor from buffy because dave's gonna want to talk about it yeah. Wow, this has completely torpedoed the entire podcast for me. Nailed it. His name's Harry Grainer, and he's great. <laughs> he's um, good in the West Wing as well. He's in the West Wing. Is he in the West Wing? There's a couple of episodes. I think he's like the Secretary of Agriculture or something. But every time you see him, you're like, ah, it's the mayor from Buffy. It's the mayor from Buffy. What happened to Faith? Mayor, huh? Yeah. Big snake bitch. <laughs> I was ashamed there aren't many daddy issues in. Well, I suppose there are, but with Buffy and Giles but we we're probably not can't getting, really we're not getting into Buffy that. right now Dave get not, back we to can't the get banks into Buffy right now. get back to the banks so yeah for a sequence of um, very like I say very understated bank robbers bank robberies um, Mike takes the mob's money from all these indescript banks around Illinois and uh, Michael is his getaway driver and with each robbery Michael's driving gets better and I, I love the uh, the very first one because Tom Hanks doesn't have to run out of these banks like he's not threatening he's not really going to hurt anybody he's only asking for the money that the mob has yeah. deposited there so the, no one in the bank is going to be like no you can't possibly take this money um, they all think he's crazy for stealing from the mob but you know, they basically just let him go yeah. uh, after he's that like, first he's bank like robbery. I'm, I'm taking the dirty money it's off the books here's a little bit of their money for yourself to just keep shtum about it yeah, I right. like when th- with Harry Grainer that first bank robbery. He says, like, remember, I'm not, I'm taking the mob's money, so I, I don't want to see a newspaper article about a heartless bank robber who mm. stole money from a couple of farmers. Like, remember why I'm doing this. Yeah, and it's that yeah that robbery where he leaves expecting his getaway car to pull up so they can get out of there, and Michael's just crawling the car along the curb <laughs> as slow as he can. And in a great little deadpan, sarcastic line, Mike says, there's no rush. <laughs> <laughs> and off they go. And yeah, so with each robbery, they keep, they're all successful. Um, and yeah, Michael becomes more competent as part of their dynamic. Mm. Um, but we've kind of skated over an introduction of a quite an important character. Who yeah. I imagine, having you read the graphic novel and what I gleaned um, earlier on while I was just doing a bit of research... Um, uh, Nitty, when uh, when Nitty and Rooney are talking about what the hell Rooney is going to do about this choice between Connor and Mike, 
Nitty just says to him, oh yeah, because Rooney's like, God help me, what do I do? And Nitty says, you need to think objectively. What would you do if Sullivan was just some guy? And that kind of pushes Rooney to be like, okay, fine, but make it quick. And mm. when the question comes up of what to do about Michael, even though Nitty does say one day, he's, he's a kid now, one day he's going to be a man, do you think he's going to forget? Rooney still retains some honour by being like, no, not, not the kid, leave the kid. Um, and that's when they have to call in somebody who can handle a job like this, um, which is uh, them, Maguire, played by played by Jude Law, is some kind of sadistic, they call him a gifted asset. And um, uh, we would get an introduction to him as a, and his weird penchant for f- uh, photographing dead people. Um, and um, yeah, kind of just painting painting a real killer I feel like someone who basically does the same job Mike does but we, we can't like him mm-hmm. so they have to make come up with someone who is undeniably dastardly in comparison to Mike um, but I read that that character does not exist in the graphic novel yes as a creation of the screenwriter yeah and I think it's a really interesting choice because this character is the most comic booky thing in the entire movie, right? If you said which one of these characters is straight out of a comic book that was published by DC Comics, as Rotop Edition was, uh, you would pick the Jude Law character who, like, uh, oh, my job is a, a crime photographer for corpses that have been killed by the mob, but also I'm a serial killer. Like, that's <laughs> fucking straight... It's like evil Peter Parker, right? It's like straight out of a, a comic book. But he's... He's the creation of the movie, and this is—he's yeah. the one character that is more movie than film, to use your your earlier kind of phrase. Where okay, I can I can see where they're coming from, because this kind of nineteen thirties Al Capone era Chicago is where you get this fascination with gangster culture starting to come, you know, come to popular culture in 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 the in the first place, and this like deep desire to know about the twisted underbelly to see the corpses of the people that gangsters have murdered like works its way into american culture and it's dark and it it speaks to our need for like true crime and why we enjoy seeing like in a twisted way the the bodies of of people that have been you know, that have been murdered, um, and how so easily that morbid fascination can turn into, you know, actual violence. Um, and that's a kind of an interesting dynamic, I think, for this character to have, as, like, somebody who became so obsessed with with death that he started killing people himself. But the character is just too fucking weird for this film. And the only the reason he's in it is because they've got this Angel of Death-esque character within Tom Hanks who seems to be, you know, an, an unstoppable force. So they need to counter him with somebody. Who's the antagonist? Like, we know his target is to kill Daniel Craig, but Daniel Craig isn't hunting him down. So who is the 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 threat that pushes them forward? Right, who keeps Tom Hanks and uh, keeps Mike and Michael on their toes during their 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 robbery, and in the book they do it by just 
they uh, they're trying to get to perdition because that's where uh, Michael's mother, uh, Michael's auntie, I guess, Mike's wife's sister lives. They're trying to get Michael to uh, to Tom Hanks' sister-in-law um, into a, a in perdition, a town where where he'll be safe. Um, and in the book, they're on their way to perdition, and the the auntie calls and says something like, that we've got, there are guys posted outside the farm, right? There are gangsters outside the farm. They haven't, lasted, they haven't left the house in three days. They're in perdition. They know you're coming here. And that forces them to change their plan. Right? Oh, okay. Whereas in the movie, they don't go straight to perdition because they discover that actually Jude Law, psychopathic, the Joker-esque character has realised that they uh, that this is where they're going. He he listens to a phone call between uh, between Tom Hanks and the sister-in-law, and realises that this is the plan. And so they have to change because they are being hunted at the same time. Right, the hunter is being hunted. It's like he may as well be predator at this point. You know, like Jude Law. Predator. Jude Law. Oh, Jude, Jude Law is predator. predator. Right, and, and Tom Hanks is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Is Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's really, okay. yeah, is that's the, the the relationship between them? Is this hunter? So and is is Michael Carl Weathers? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, he is, and he's got they've got the bulging um, <laughs> bicep uh, handshake to to signify. Um, but yeah, it's it's a strange. That's an interesting point actually, because Tom Hanks doesn't have a doesn't have a Carl Weathers. He doesn't have any allies. No. He has no brothers. If if this family that he works for, the Rooney family, is um, a fat, even though it is a business, if it's a family, he has. There is no other one. Like he doesn't have a partner that he goes out on jobs with. No one he's close to. He is a completely lo- a lone ranger. Oh mm-hmm. shit! Oh my god! I'm putting it together. Oh my goodness! It's it's happening. Oh, it's but I, I, I think it's a, a, there's a really great moment later on where they, they rob the banks and so they decide to go for the accountant, right? And they find the accountant at a hotel. And yeah, because the mob take all their money out of the banks, don't they? They realise what's going on, so yeah. they take it all away. Yeah, so we, we get a bit now. We've had a, 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 a real growth in the relationship between Tom Hanks and, um, and, and his son where we can see now that actually they are beginning to rely on each other a lot more. They're beginning to trust each other. And Michael has pushed his dad a bunch of times where he said, I, I need, we're in this together and I can do more. So like, so trust me. And then we have other moments where he said, he says to his dad, why did you treat Peter, the younger son? Why did you treat Peter differently to me? Right, did you prefer Peter? Uh, or why why did you always treat me differently? And that's one of the, the strongest moments in the movie. There's two really strong moments, I think, for me, in terms of daddy issue moments. I think there's that moment where it says, why did you treat my brother differently to how did you treat me? Did you prefer him? And there's another mm. moment where they're eating food at a diner, and it's just the two of them yeah. eating food at a diner, and oh, it's just a brilliant, it's just a brilliant scene of two great actors building this relationship um that a believable father and son relationship uh that really shows that they've grown closer over the time of their their journey yeah it's really it's really light-hearted mm. and that and it's a chance for tom hanks to so like and and um superman 
who plays Michael, they both have very. It's because it's a very short scene in terms of dialogue, but there are gaps. the The timing of the dialogue is really clever, and the comic timings, I mean, especially just to make that sequence make it makes you smile it makes you laugh it's like ah oh, they're they're having a joke with each other um and everything it's just a way of reminding us that things are going well yeah. uh which i think happens probably right before things start to go bad well yeah. not go bad but dramatic i guess when like you say they they track down the accountant who's taken all the mob's money out of the banks that they've been robbing yeah so they, they track down this accountant and tom hanks says i'm gonna go talk to this guy and if you see here anything, honk the horn. But, you know, but but that's it. And um, he goes up to see the accountant. But then Jude Law has been waiting like a sniper or a, a snake or something. He's, he knows, he knows because he's the antagonist of this movie that Tom Hanks is going to go after the accountant. He's gifted after all, you know. Uh, yeah, this is kind of what I mean, though. This is this is why, for me, Jude Law is the weakest part of the movie. Not because of, he's a bad actor. His performance is fine. Um, his design, like his the way the character looks, whether he's got like a, um, a the massive bald spot in the, the centre of his head, and his teeth have been like shrunk. He's, he's got these horrible stained, tiny teeth that are really kind of gross and disgusting. Um... All of that stuff is, is super strong. But it's because he's a caricature character in a movie where he's the only caricature character. Nobody else in the film is kind of deformed, a deformed monstrosity in the same way that he is. Everybody else has some kind of moral duality to them. And the way that that influences their relationship with others in the way we see with with Mike and then with with Paul Newman and Daniel Craig, there is a moral connection between them that exists because of their their familial relationship with one another. Their morality is constantly going backwards and forwards because of their love, whereas with this Jude Law character, it's like for, for the other characters, it was what are you willing to do for the people that you love? Right, and it leads them to do some pretty fucking horrible shit. But for for Jude Law's character, he doesn't do it for money. He doesn't do it for love. He does it because he's just a fucking killer. And he looks weird. And yeah, it's a and even there's that scene where he's he's watching over the over the, the, the road like a hawk and this prostitute's like how much longer are you going to need me for, mister? As if, like, this kind of, like, oh, yeah, and you thought he was bad? Well, he also sleeps with prostitutes. And even worse, he doesn't treat them well. And <laughs> it's it's kind of like... He, like, teases her with the money, like, yeah. take, it, take, it, take it. Yeah, it's just like, oh, it's just kind of sloppy. Anyway, the, uh, Tom Hanks goes up to see the accountant and is like, give me all the files you've got on... On the bad guys. I want the files about Daniel Craig so I can do bad things because I'm going to get revenge. And then Jude Law busts in and they have a bit of a shootout. Um, but most importantly, Michael does his duty in the car and honks the horn. And he does it and he doesn't stop honking the horn. And Tom Hanks can't hear it because there's uh, uh, like a stockbroker 
ticker tape kind ticker of thing. Yeah, don't going, know what ticker, 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 yeah, throughout. And he can't hear the... So apparently that's so loud, he can't hear a car horn honking outside. But it's a movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> so, but Michael does his duty and warns his father a split second before Jude Law busts in. And it's just enough time for him to get what he needs and escape with a, with a gunshot wound. He gets into the car. Michael drives off. And... Um, Tom Hanks falls into a, a delirious state of sickness and this bullet wound just in- incapacitates him as he becomes ill. And the son now is responsible for the father for the first mm. time that we see in the movie. Yeah, totally. I, I, I did write, I, in my notes, I wrote that it's Michael who then has to take affirmative action. Mm. Like when... Uh, when their family is killed in their house, Mike has to, as a father would in that situation, he has to take action, get them moving, set out the rules. Here's what's going to happen. Um, which he also does as a, a sequence earlier where um, Tom, where Michael, uh, sorry, Tom Hanks realizes they are being chased by Jude Law's character and they have sort of an altercation in the diner. And when they escape, when Mike and Michael escape, they sort of drive down the road a bit and then switch off their headlights and pull into a field just so Mike can pull Michael out of the car and be like, you have to listen to me now. If when I say, because like they're, they're driving away and Mike's like, get down. And Michael's like, why? What's going on? And Jude Law shoots through the back of the car and Nor just misses him. So when they have a chance to pull over, Michael's like, when I say get down, get down. Don't ask me why, just do it. And that's it's, this is a cool a cool sequence where um, if you uh, where Mike's like, listen, if we're going to do this, you have to start listening to me, and you know, or you can just go and take care of yourself, like an ultimatum, really. That you don't really get a sense that he means. Um, and Michael says, I could take care of myself fine. You never even wanted me to come along anyway. You think all this is my fault? Yeah. And that's like, like I harked to earlier about sort of maybe trying to read into some con- uh, subtext about what Mike might be thinking about all this. He, without hesitation, very um, pointedly says. This is not your fault. None of this is your fault. He doesn't quite go as far as to say it's my fault. He just alleviates any responsibility that Michael might be feeling. He might have been harboring this this whole time and kind of making him act out a bit and be and dissent against his father sometimes. But this is where, yeah, that's the point where Mike reaches out to him and says, "Look, we've got to do this thing. We've got to rob these banks. Are you with me? Are yeah. you with me, Kira?" Oh, yeah. That's a- that was a Chronicles of Riddick reference. Weird. I'm sorry about that. Um, but I like, I wanted to, I'm glad that I've come back to that because there's a cool parallel from that uh, conversation between Mike and Michael to a bit, uh, sort of around the same time as uh, when they go and see the accountant guy, um, where uh, we see Connor sort of in in hiding, being protected by by the gangsters in, in, uh, in Chicago, Mr. Nitty's hotel or whatever and he and connor tries to ring his dad and we see paul newman just sat in a dark room the phone's ringing but he's ignoring it there's no interest in talking he's probably still wrestling with his his dilemma or or, you know the choice he has made at this point um and connor again showing us how unlikable he is he just throws a bit of a hissy fit when he no one picks up the phone so he storms out of his hotel room where he's being protected storms into Mr. Nitty's office to sort of berate him and yell at him and be like, why is nobody talking to me? And Nitty's trying to conduct some business. I think he's on the phone with Jude Law at that point. 
um, when Jude Law's telling him about all the money that's been nicked. Um, and just like uh, Michael said earlier about, I can take care of myself, that when, when Michael says that, Mike doesn't tell him that he can't. He just says, look, we need to work together. Whereas when Connor goes, um, you know, sort of starts arguing against this protection that he's been given by Mr. Nitty and by his father, he's like, I don't need protection. I can look after myself. Whereas Nitty comes straight back at him and goes, no, you can't. That's the point. You're a big baby who doesn't know his thumb from his dick. And that's just a, that's just a great put down. And again, Connor kind of just acts like a spoiled little child and was like, you can't talk to me like that. I'm the future and my and and my dad he's an old man and i'm leaving and he just slams the door and off he goes so if um obviously there are you can draw easy compar- um, parallels between the two father son relationships in one you've got um michael who reacts pretty um reasonably to the trauma that he experiences but then quickly has to mature mm-hmm. into his their new life which he does and he's quite adept at it meanwhile connor is the most immature 30 year old you've ever seen because he was raised to be almost like he's been spoiled and him and michael are polar opposites in terms of honor yeah 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 i think that's a really good point and the way those father and son relationships change as well where at the beginning of the movie, you have um, Paul Newman and Daniel Craig as as John and, and Connor Rooney, who are in business together, right? They are a father and son partnership, and they do work together. And it's clear that although Paul Newman doesn't have complete faith in him, his son goes out and does business because he will have to take over at some point, presumably. Whereas Tom Hanks and as with Mike and Michael, they are completely detached from one another. And in that scene where um, Michael says, why did you prefer my brother to me? Mm. What, what Tom Hanks kind of replies is, I didn't know that I treated you any differently. I didn't mean to treat you any differently. But in you, I saw myself. And I saw the violent parts of myself that I didn't want to recognise and that I didn't want to introduce you to. But now we're here in this situation. And it's essentially it's it's a moment where he acknowledges to his son that he's not a good person. Where he says outwardly to his son, the bits of myself I saw in you were not the bits that I wanted to see. And I'm sorry if that's made like led me to treat you differently but i get the feeling in this moment and he doesn't say it but i in the back of his head you're like thank god it's this son that's with me at this moment is what is what i feel from that character where he's like thank god it's michael that i'm chasing after these gangsters with and not peter because if it was peter the happy a child who's getting his hair dried by his mother before they get killed. He's making jokes. He's like pulling on Daniel Craig's sleeve. Why are you smiling all the time? <laughs> if it, Tom Hanks would be babysitting him, would be looking after him, would be consoling him. I'm sorry about your mother dying in front of you, all of this kind of stuff. 
where he doesn't have to do any of that with his his son because the minute that they leave that house together well maybe not that moment i think it's when they they have that conversation we were discussing earlier where he says it's not your fault right that's the moment that 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 boy transitions from a boy to a man right and it's the moment where they go we're in this together and that's when tom hanks and mike and michael overtake the father and son relationship between paul newman and daniel craig because that's when paul newman is beating him in a corner is not answering his phone calls is ashamed of him and on the other hand mike and michael are like i depend on you and i trust you and they know each other they finally know each other in a way that they that they never have done before and it's through a path of violence and and not what they would have wanted but they truly understand each other in a way that they couldn't have done just through normal life yeah, I think that's true. And about them knowing each other, that scene, um, whilst after after Michael's been shot and they're sort of hiding out on a farm, and these farm people of uh, these old couple at a farm have looked after them, um, and they're having that that conversation um, about why did you treat me different to my brother? Mm. Um, it it does though become it, they um, they say well uh, Michael sorry Mike starts to tell us that he doesn't really know Michael he didn't really know Peter he's getting bits of information for the first time that he never knew in just small talk where he, um, Mike Mike is looking through all the paperwork and the accounting stuff that he's nicked and Michael says oh math huh and, he's, and Tom Hanks says yeah I always hated math and Michael says yeah me too and Tom yes. Hanks realises he d- didn't know that about him and he says well okay then what's kind of what do you like mm-hmm. And he, because he has no idea, and then when, and yeah, also when Michael says Peter was good at math, uh, Tom Hanks says, "Was he?" Like he had, he has no idea. And there's a great bit at the beginning of the movie where the Michael is sat with Peter around the kitchen table, trying to do maths homework, and yeah. Peter is annihilating it. He's just incredible, at it. and <laughs> yeah. Michael can't do it at all. And his mother yeah. comes across and says, "I'll help you with it later." Because his mother is good at maths, Peter is good at maths. They are one half of this of this family, and then the violent, uh, violent at heart aren't not good at maths. Tom Hanks and uh, Mike and Michael they really are senior and junior, but they just haven't come to realize their relationship at that point in the movie it's not until they they speak at the end at what you're saying here in this farmhouse where they realize okay we we both are michael sullivan right we are yeah. the same in you know we are father and son yeah in that way it's a really yeah and in, a, and in a, it is yeah, that i think that's the, the the big daddy issues scene for me really and then it ends with a kind of a physical manifestation of that realization of their similarities where they say goodnight and Michael goes in for a big hug and Mike is almost kind of taken aback by it mm. and kind of sort of gently taps him on the arm and because we've never seen them embrace that's not the kind of father-son relationship they've had um and when that scene that scene begins with uh, they're yeah they're in the farmhouse it's late at night Mike is looking through all the paperwork Michael walks in and goes I had a bad dream 
Yeah. And yeah. this is kind of... Um, Which is what Peter said is, to him at the very beginning of the film. Yeah, when Peter right. had was having a nightmare about Mr. Rooney's house and Michael yeah. was like, it's just a house. Yeah. And now Michael uh, Michael walks in and goes, I had a bad dream. And Mike's, his dad's yeah, response kind of interested me and I'm not sure why, where it looks like Mike asks a question that he wouldn't have normally asked, which he says, do you want to talk about it? Mm. Which is a very kind of progressive and modern <laughs> uh, method of parenting when you compare it to every other kind of parenting we see in this movie where it's like stiff upper lip, mm. men are strong, honour, honour above everything, um, duty above everything, not, you know, are you okay? Let's mm. Let's talk about what might have scared you. And Michael chooses not to talk about it, and they can go into that conversation whether we get more of a, a reveal about their relationship. But um, yeah, I found that a very interesting response. Yeah, I think it's a again, it's a really cool moment. Um, but I think we should keep moving forward. Let's keep moving. Because, like like Mike yeah, and Michael. Yeah, because forward. we're we're very close to to the bit where my mum. I watched it with my mum yesterday no, on Thursday, and mum went. Oh no! Like that. Um, this bit, this bit that's coming up. So, after looking through all of the accounting papers that he, he got, Mike realizes that Daniel Craig was the one who had been stealing money all along. That that guy that Julius Caesar, Steppenwolf from Justice League, was like he never told a lie. It was right. He never told a lie. Daniel Craig had been stealing the money all along. Put it on this brother and then Tom Hanks presumably killed him for stealing when he didn't steal anything at all. It was all Daniel Craig. And now that um, that we realise that Michael witnessing the murder, it means Daniel Craig's got a lot of loose ends to tie up. Right? He's got to tie yeah. up Steppenwolf from Justice League because he knows that it was never that it was never a lie. Tom Hanks has to die because he heard Steppenwolf from Justice League say that his brother didn't do anything, and now and he's pretty suspicious. suspicious. That, uh, that, yeah, because yeah, and then when Steppenwolf says that, the first thing Daniel Craig does is turn and shoots him in the head. Yeah, like, and that's, then that's and then, suspicious. Yeah, and Michael saw it happen as well, so he's got to go as well. So Daniel yeah. Craig is trying desperately to clean house to save his own skin, and Tom Tom Hanks goes to Paul Newman. They track he tracks him down to to mass to a church, which is like a a constant themes of Irish Catholicism throughout the movie and the book, yeah, the yeah. book as well. Um, but he he goes to him in mass and says, "Let's have a word." And this is the first time we've seen them together since they were father and son, really, at the beginning of the movie, Paul Newman and Tom Hanks. Where we we haven't seen them together since all of the shit went down. But they go they go into like a, a crypt, I guess, underneath, and Tom Hanks lays it all out. Right, mm. and it's like your your son Daniel Craig was stealing from you. This is what he did. This is why he did it. Here's the proof. Here's the proof. Give him to me. And all of this is is forgotten, right? Give him to me, and nothing more has to happen. And Paul Newman pretty much lays out. He knows that Daniel Craig is going to be killed at some point because if Paul Newman dies. Um, his value, Daniel Craig's value to Al Capone and to to Stanley Tucci is meaningless. 
um, because they all know that he's a punk. They know he's a rat, that he's a slime ball. They don't want to work with him. His only value is Paul Newman, you know, wants his son to be alive. And we get this moment where Paul Newman has to say, leave now. Right. He offered him money to leave, actually, after at the very beginning, didn't he? He said to, yeah. there was a message given to Tom Hanks that said, here's like five thousand dollars or twenty five thousand dollars. Twenty five grand. Yeah. yeah. Here's twenty five thousand dollars. Go to Ireland now. I'm sorry about it, but just go up, up. I can protect you to get you out of the country. But that's it. And then he brings up this offer again now. And he says um, he has that, that moment we discussed earlier on where he says none of us are going to heaven. And you know we we yeah. chose this life of this life of violence and crime. None of us are going to heaven. And Tom Hanks says Michael could. And this is yeah. this is the battle for the soul of his son, right? They're trying to kill his son, but both Tom Hanks and Paul Newman are trying desperately in this chaos of violence and blood to save the soul of this boy and not you know. And Paul Newman says, "Then get him out of the country now. Both of you just go." But Tom Hanks can't let go of vengeance against the, the person who murdered his wife and wife and child. Which leads us to probably the most iconic scene in the movie where they've said their, their goodbyes to each other. They've, Paul Newman and Tom Hanks, they've realised that this is the end of their father and son relationship because they've come to one bridge that they can't cross, Right. Paul Newman can't murder his own son. He just can't. In the same way that Tom Hanks can't walk away from this. They, they're just... There's, it's an irresolvable crisis. And so we get the... Well, I'll let you describe it. Because it's a, a beautiful moment. Again, of cinematography. Well, I don't know which... which uh, oh, no, you should carry on because I don't know which uh, part exactly you're talking about. All right. Well, Paul Newman is going back to his car in an, in an alleyway. And the rain yeah. starts to fall down in uh, in the alleyway. I'm doing rain fingers uh, over webcam while we did. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Paul Newman goes to get in the car, only to find that the driver is dead. And all of the goons see that the driver is dead, and they start looking around. Who killed this guy? Who could it be? And Paul Newman looks down the street, and there's only darkness. But he knows, right? He knows that you know this is only one guy could have done this. And if you can't see Baba him, Yeager. yeah, just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not there. But it's entirely silent, and it's oh, an incredible moment. Yeah, where Paul I love that that choice to make to mute all the gunfire. Yeah, not, I don't. If, and it's raining really heavily again in this scene. I can't remember if you can hear the rainfall or not, or if it is just score. Mm. But Paul Newman is looking in the opposite direction. And he's looking at one one end of the street, but Tom Hanks is at the other end of the street, completely shrouded by darkness, with his Tommy gun just mowing down these gangsters, completely missing Paul Newman. Like, he's a good shot. you got to give him that. He's a great shot. But, with a yeah. Tommy gun from, like, 50 metres. That's insane. I know. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's almost unbelievable. But he uh, he, <laughs> he gets them, and you don't hear a single bullet. And it's amazing. Yeah. Because then he walks up, Paul Newman turns around, they face each other, you get Tom Hanks emerging from the darkness like Captain America in uh, Avengers Infinity War. And <laughs> um, he emerges from the darkness, they approach, they turn around, father and son look at each other one more time. And Paul Newman says something like, uh, I'm glad it's you. 
Yeah, yeah. Right? And that speaks volumes because he doesn't just mean oh i'm glad it's you that's that's killing me now although that is you know that is part of it like oh if anyone was going to kill me i'm glad that it was you but that also speaks to i'm glad it wasn't my son sticking a dagger in my back yeah right? i'm glad it wasn't me being betrayed by daniel craig or you know just some random hit or i didn't just die of old age like i'm glad that it's a man of honor who i trust and who i love my real son and i'm glad it's somebody doing it for a reason that i understand right yeah. that you know it's a that's a great moment it's, yeah, it's a lot of honor like we they, it's, just, mm. it's an honorable way to go yeah as far as and he's that's, concerned. that's then when the sound kicks back in and tom hanks just unloads the tommy gun onto Paul Newman for like five seconds or something like a consistent yeah. amount of time off camera again like we, we see it yeah. we see it as a shot of Tom Hanks yeah but and it so is you just a... watch his eyes fall as uh, look down as presumably Tom Hanks yeah. uh, sorry Paul Newman just falls to the ground yeah but it's a deafening sound effect of yeah. the, the machine gun like because you, you all like 10 people were murdered in silence and then when Paul Newman dies it's deafening and it's a really, um, really amazing choice, I think. Because, yeah. again, we see the emotional impact of the violence. If Tom Hanks is just killing random gangsters, it doesn't mean anything. But he has to, if he kills his own father, the violence is bright and loud and impactful. Yeah, um, that's great. Great choice. Yeah. And but, you said, what you said earlier uh, made me think about this moment when you were talking about um, the... Uh, sort of morbid curiosity of people around mob killings and stuff um and that's kind of spread that's kind of followed us all the way into modern sort of uh, especially in american news they're quite uh, graphic with what they show mm. on the news and maybe think of the film nightcrawler where um his jake Gyllenhaal's character is kind of similar to jake jude law's character in this and that he starts you put well with jude law we kind of presume but you see he starts with just having a morbid curiosity and then he, he's the stakes get higher and he needs to start creating the morbid scenes for himself um, but the steer when tom hanks kills paul newman he looks up and there are just people looking out of their windows um all around all around this street and no one's panicking no one is screaming no one's got their hand to their mouth mm. they're all just looking as if as if it was a photo as if it's mm. you know I, I don't know i don't know what that speaks to but it's very moving because Tom Hanks is looking up at them all and they're just, they're all sharing in it somehow. Yeah. yeah, it's a moment, as you're saying, nobody's scared. Nobody thinks that Tom Hanks is now going to turn around and just gun them down from the windows. Yeah, it's like yeah. a moment of judgment from them on him. Like Again, like a religious yeah. thing to a certain degree, but also a judgment from him on them of being this for you is just, like you're saying, this is just a curiosity. But for me, this is the death of my father and you're not engaging with it in the same way that, that I am. But uh, as the plot goes forward, we realise, of course, that, that Paul Newman was correct. And that now that he's dead, um, Al Capone, the, the other crime families have no reason to protect Daniel Craig. So uh, and I'm speaking about this so bluntly because when they show it, it's so blunt. Tom Hanks goes up in an yeah. elevator, walks into the hotel room, walks into the bathroom, shoots him once and exits. And the, yeah, they you they don't... open a channel for him. They just yeah, like Nitty yeah. just goes as long as as long as it's over after this, 
here's his hotel room and uh, name and room number. And yeah, they yeah. just they let him into the the muscle guys let him into the hotel. They let him into the hotel room. Yeah, he just that no one stops him. He doesn't even he barely stops walking as he walks into the bathroom, pops him in the bath, walks yeah. out. Yeah, and we don't done. see and him that, get that great shot. shot yeah. No, we don't see him get... And this happens a lot, actually, in this film. Maybe this is what kept it at a 15 as opposed to an 18. Is there aren't an awful lot of, like, um, b- bullet shots and then blood splatter. A lot of it happens um, it's from the other perspective. It's an off-camera reveal. Yeah. Yeah, like when, in, when um, Tom Hanks gets betrayed and uh, that brothel owner guy is given an indication that if he can kill Tom Hanks, then he's off the hook. Um when Tom Hanks grabs a gun and shoots him in the head, we see the bullet hole in the head, but I don't think we see the, the, the impact. Mm. And the same thing with um, when he shoots Paul Newman, we all we see is Tom Hanks. And the same thing happens here with Daniel Craig. It's, it's shot through a doorway, and we see Tom Hanks put his gun out, out of frame. Is it one shot or two? I don't remember. Mm. Pow, pow. And he walks back out, and, sit, and like it's really well done. He looks like he accidentally nudges the bathroom door as he's on the way out, and there's a mirror on the inside of the bathroom door. And as the door spins closed, we as the audience can see the reflection of Daniel Craig mm-hmm. in the bath, blood splatter, brains everywhere. Yeah. Boom. It's a great, a really, really great, beautifully directed moment. Um, and then that's it. They're off to perdition. Right? Yeah, they're, because, they're, they're in the yeah, clear. Yeah, because the, the, Roonies, the Roonies are gone. Um, things have been wrapped up with um with, with nitty yeah. yeah like the the crime families aren't after each other they've got this life of peace so they go off to per, perdition on the shit on the shores of lake michigan um yeah. and um they step down and they've, they've spoken about this house before oh there's a dog at the house the dog runs out and tom hanks has the chance to look at his son um as a child again right we have about five there's about i'd say two minutes of this movie at the end where uh, Michael Sullivan gets to be a child again, right? Their life yeah. of crime is finished. They're down on the beach. The dog comes out and he realizes, and, and Mike gets to see his son play something that seemed impossible, like it never could have happened um, after everything that they've been through. And there's another really amazing piece of cinematography coming up that we'll, we'll definitely get into. But... Um, there's a great connection in this movie between water and death, I think. And um, oh, okay. like the rain, um, lots of murders happen in the rain. Yeah. And um, when Peter is is murdered with his mother, it's because his mother is washing his hair. He's just come out of, out of the bath of the shower. Um, yeah. Daniel Craig is killed in the bath. And then we get to Lake Michigan and it's a giant lake. And I'm like, uh. Oh, <laughs> and also I read the book the day before I watched the movie, so I knew I knew what was going to happen anyway. But um, oh, wrong way round. I know. But yeah, reading the book before you watch the movie, ridiculous. What a nerd. Yeah. So, um, they've they've gone to the the sister in law, the auntie's house at last. Um, Michael is playing with with their dog. He's on the beach, and uh. Mike Tom Hanks goes into the house to say, you know, we're here, we, we made it. And the house seems empty and deserted. It's entirely white inside the house. It's like when you watch a, a B movie and a character's wearing a white shirt, you know, ah, I know why they're wearing that white shirt. And yeah. it's so that it could be stained. But the house is, it is entirely white. And he steps forward to these giant windows. And again, we don't look out of the windows. 
we look at the ref- kind of through the windows at Tom Hanks looking out of the windows because we're not seeing what he's seeing we're seeing his reaction to what he's seeing yeah and it's that opposite it's the same thing again with when he shoots Paul Newman but it's him seeing life in his son seeing the childhood rather than seeing death for for the first time i think it's a really a really great moment but what we don't see is what's hidden behind obscured in the same way that daniel craig couldn't see um at the beginning when he's doing his hair through through the doorway we can't yeah. see what what else is is in the room behind tom hanks and i'll leave yeah. this i'll leave this bit to you oh well I, I'm, it's not like i'm gonna do a great job of it but it, it seems it seems like a practical choice in that if this the the scene is shot from outside the house through the window and um they make no it's a very natural looking shot almost as if you're looking at with your own eyes in that your your eye can't necessarily focus on what's inside what's beyond the glass it's half focusing on what is reflected in the glass so that makes it harder to see into the room beyond where tom hanks is stood which is right by the window so we can see him there and sort of shapes in the background and yeah, that this is another one of these great um, pieces of camera work or cinematography, like when um, Julius Caesar is killed at the, at the beginning, where it's just the camera just stays peeking through this hole in the wall. The camera stays watching Tom Hanks through the glass and um, then gunshots, pow, pow. And it is, it, I felt like it, it very jarring, very loud and... Tom Hanks staggers against the glass, blood starts to seep through his shirt, he starts to fall, and then we see the, a figure appear um, far deeper into the room, and um, it's revealed that it's Maguire, Jude Law's character. And I know I, earlier on I said I had some issues with the ending, and one of the issues I have with the ending is that this final few moments seems to be framed, and maybe I'm reading it wrong, but it seems to be framed as a surprise like as a tw- almost like a twist as if he never saw this coming and for me like all the all the the major beats of this final scene i saw coming mm-hmm. as soon as they get to the the house by the lake and they're walking along the beach and everything seems peaceful i just yeah every it, it all this was laid out in my head like well that's going to happen then that's going to happen then that's going to happen and it's exactly the way it goes where um uh yeah uh, Jude Law's got a couple of hits in on uh, shots in on Mike. He's on the ground. He's bleeding. He's dying. Jude Law gets his camera out to do his thing that he does, where he takes pictures of dying people or dead people, and he kind of revels in it and says like smile or whatever and takes a picture. Um, but what's cool about that reflective shot that we saw of Tom Hanks looking out the window and our perspective is from the outside is that in that reflection you can see like the water lapping up on the beach from the lake but you can also see michael very small playing Mm. with the dog and he obviously hears the gunshots because he's waving at his dad and then he's the gunshots happen and he freezes with his hand in the air and then he runs out of frame so he obviously knows what's going on so when jude law has got his camera up and he's taking pictures of tom hanks and then there's the sound of a gun cocking and he turns around and Michael's there with a gun of his own pointed at Jude Law. I was like, well, yep, saw that. That was going to happen. Um, and like uh, Michael is in, um, got his gun pointed at Jude Law. 
but Mike on the ground is sort of shaking his head like, no, don't do it, don't do it. Jude Law's trying to, um, trying to get Michael to hand him the gun. You hear a gunshot, and they felt like you're meant to think that it was Michael, but it very plainly was not going to be Michael. And Tom Hanks has magic to gun out of his ass or something. Like he hasn't moved off the ground, but somehow he's got a gun in his hand. He shoots and kills Jude Law, and Michael's like, I couldn't do it. And Mike says, it's okay, or good, basically. Like, I'm glad. I didn't want you to do it. This whole journey has been about you not becoming me. Yeah. Um, and uh, that sort of duality question that was posed right at the beginning of, was my father a good man, or did he have no good in him at all, um, is still unanswered by the end but the point is that Michael will never have to answer that question of himself because mm-hmm. he didn't hasn't hasn't done anything that he shouldn't have done yeah um, and Michael runs to cradle his dad Tom Hanks as he I think did they, did they have a kind of death rattle kind of conversation no I think that's that's Does the last bit that's what the last bit isn't I couldn't do it and he says like good or good you know, or I yeah, know I, or I, well I, done so, or whatever yeah. yeah yeah either way Tom Hanks clearly didn't want Michael to mm. become him by killing a man and in the end Tom Hanks saved his son by doing what he does which is kill a man yeah and and save him and simultaneously saving his soul not just his his life and then he dies in Michael's arms and Michael cries, as you would expect. Um, so, which is not the, the, the complete ending. Um, we have this kind of, uh, what's, um, I can't remember, I think we were taught the phrase of what this is called when uh, the film starts and ends in the same place. Yeah. So the film, the film opened with Michael stood on the beach, looking out over the lake in voiceover, talking about his father and then at this moment, we come back, we go full circle back to that the present of Michael stood on the beach looking out over the lake and sort of finishing that thought of, what does he say? Um, I saw then that my father's only fear was that his sin would, uh, that his son would follow the same road. And, you know, after finding the ending quite predictable, where Michael then lays out the message of the film, literally... In voiceover, I'm I'm taken out of it mm-hmm. completely. Like you didn't need to say that. Like this is one of those. I don't know. I, I don't. I got. I haven't got the insight in this, but that felt like a real executive producer note that goes and and put in the end about that because you know that's important. And I feel like Sam Mendes and the screenwriter, hopefully, fingers crossed, were like, no, we don't need that. Mm-hmm. We've that's been the theme of the movie since the end of Act One, and. Um, Tom Hanks as if you've watched the cut does a brilliant job of expressing that throughout the movie we don't need to slap the audience in the face with it by the end but they do and yeah. I guess it's it's a choice and maybe for for other people they liked they liked it and it well, did have that full circle vibe but I found that uh, I was going to say distasteful but not distasteful it, just, it left a sour taste in my mouth after mm-hmm. what for the for the whole for the movie has been classy well measured realistic in a way i don't know what did you how did you find it uh i want to come back to to that that final scene um in the lake in a minute but in terms of the ending um i have to compare it to the ending of the book 
which is slightly different because the book pays a lot more attention to the uh, the Catholic nature of of the characters than the movie does. The movie brings it up, oh, they're a mass, but there's a bit in the movie where he says, um, "If I die, you go to to the Protestant, uh, the the Methodist Church. Don't go to the Catholic Church." Right, yeah, that, yeah. but they they never explain why. Whereas mm. in the book, they they explain well, actually, the mob are all Catholic, and they all pay the Catholic Church. And if you go to the Catholic Church, the priest will turn you over, and oh, right. and, and you'll be killed. But they don't explain that in really in in the movie. I guess it's kind of implied. But um, at the end of the end of the book, it cuts to Michael summarizing his story and his father's story. And uh, jumps to him in the future as a Catholic priest himself, and he's oh. in, he's writing this story to tell the how the sins of the father were not passed on to him, but how he has gone on to try and find meaning, and to live a life free of sin because of you know because of the the childhood that he went through. Um, and in the book, he does actually kill somebody to save his father. It's not in the final scene, it's, but it's earlier on. He does kill someone. And so he's trying to find penance. Um, but he's not shown as being a guilty man. He's shown as doing what is necessary to, to save his father. But the movie doesn't... Kind of going back to that, that scene of the lake. Um, as you're saying, it's... Even my mum... I say even my mum. My mum's a, a brilliant, um, amazing person, but she's not like a movie buff, right? She's not one to be like, oh my God, this is what's going to happen in this movie, right? Um, but when it came to the beach, my mum went, Tom Hanks is going to die soon. And if my mum realises the minute they step on that beach that Tom Hanks is about to die, it's because the movie wants you to know that Tom Hanks is about to die, right? Yeah. Because my, my mum is picking up the messages that the movie is putting down. She's not predicting that because she's seen so many movies that she, like, you know, she hasn't read the, the, the structure of or how movies are set up. But they have, Sam Mendes and the team have worked in the sense of dread, right? That, that Michael runs off to be free, but for the, the camera doesn't stay with Michael running off with the dog. It stays with Mike and it keeps the, the sound of the water uh, rushing against the shore and mm. keeps us with a sense of unease right michael is free but for mike although his son is free karma hasn't caught up to him yet right and yeah. it's the sword of damocles that is whole that is hanging over mike's head and it gives us this sense that although this thing has been uh has been resolved his sins are going to catch up with him sooner or later. And he knows that. And it just happens to be sooner, right? It just happens to be the Sword of Damocles is in the room behind him. And it, and that's it. But for me, that scene has the literal meaning of him being shot and he dies. But also, this was inevitable. Right? This was yeah. always going to happen. Eventually, it was going to catch up with him. So for me, the suspense of that scene isn't... Tom Hanks being shot, although it made me jump when the gun went off because it, the shot holds on him for so long. It's yeah. like the 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 recent Invisible Man movie. I don't know if you saw that, but it's, I didn't a, see that, no. uh, it's fucking great. You need to watch it so we can talk about it. Um, but the, the, it just stays with him for so long that you know something's up. And then when Jude Law, um, you know, shoots him and stuff, it 
it's oh, my mum went oh no but she she had predicted that this was going to happen right so my yeah. mum knew that this was going to happen but it still it it hurt the tension within that scene is the soul of michael of mike mike junior in this bit and yeah. for the whole movie they've been trying to to keep him clean they've been trying to protect him from from um you know, from committing a murder. And when Tom Hanks gets shot, I, I noticed this because I was like, that's a weird choice. Why is he doing that? One of his arms goes round to the back of his belt as he goes down uh, because I think that's, where, he, he, that's where he's keeping his gun. But I noticed that why is he staggering around with his hand behind his back? That doesn't really make any sense. But I, I'm guessing that's because he's going for his gun back there. Um, yeah, sure. But um, yeah, when Tom Hanks does kill, does kill him, it's a sense of relief, not because Michael has been saved, because Jude Law probably was going to kill him anyway, but we're not, like, if Jude Law had killed him, we would have been like, oh no, what a sad ending. But if ultimately Michael had corrupted himself, that would have been the tragic, the tragic ending for me. Yeah. It would have been after all of this, you know, he's, he's, you know, the sins of the father did pass on to the son. And that's why I think it works more than um, more than the jump scare of oh my god he he was shot because you're 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 definitely right it's not a surprise when Tom Hanks dies at the end because he had he had to really there was no happy ending out of the road to perdition it was you know it was always gonna have to be the way that it was but Michael gets to go back to the family that they they stayed with earlier on they gave some yeah. money to when they painted their house and he gets the opportunity to have a childhood um free sure. from you know the the influence of his father and the sins of of his father and grandfather and yeah un- uncle connor uncle connor yeah now i th- I, I agree that the, the ending works and i think um it, i yeah i th- but by, by me saying it was predictable, I'm not trying to damn it in any no, way. No, I, f- I think it was... Um, the reason I wasn't surprised by every- anything that happened in the order in which it happened is because I felt like it, the way the film had gone and the way it, um, the, the tone of it had gone, I thought this is the only way this film can end. Yeah. If it, if it had ended any other way, I would have thought it was bizarre and wouldn't have fit. So it it had to end. And I think part of this is to do with the casting of Tom Hanks. It had to end with, um, well, it had to end with perdition. Yeah. It had it had to end with, um, it's like it's well, I've written down the definition: eternal punishment and damnation into which sinful and unrepentant person passes after death. Mm-hmm. Like it's the the road to perdition is a very obvious two handed thing of this definition of it, um, and the fact that there's a place called perdition which they they get to in the end. Um, so yeah, it was just a case of the, the checklist needed to be complete. Mm-hmm. Like, um, Tom Hanks, his character can't have some miraculous reprieve. Like he has lived with his sins and has been accepting of his sins and he isn't entirely repentant because he's carried on. This has been his life and he's done this and at no point does he show any regret for it. Um, but because it's Tom Hanks and not and a more ambiguous actor he needs to have his saving private ryan moment and fulfill 
his destiny and save the soul of a more innocent person. Um, if he had spent the movie trying to save Michael's soul and like Paul Newman said, we will not get into heaven, but Michael could. Well, Tom Hanks says Michael could. And then at the end, he does get corrupted and therefore he can't get into heaven. And what was the point of the whole film? You know, mm-hmm. so it's very, yeah, the film is very complete in that way. And in terms of the jigsaw puzzle is done. There aren't any bits missing that I could see. It was just when the, 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 that is, there is that long shot, like you said, that does build dread and tension. And then it's punctuated very quickly with powerful gunshots. I wasn't, I don't know. I, I, it, the, I, I felt cheated out of an emotional mm. punch because the film takes you on a journey that can only have one ending. It couldn't, it couldn't have ended any other way. So you're just waiting for all of those, all those steps to be taken really, I think. But so I feel like it, maybe it lacks a little bit of that emotionally for me, but in terms of a film and filmmaking, it's kind of flawless. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's maybe just my perception and, and things which meant that, yeah, I couldn't be surprised. Yeah. Unless it was made badly, which it wasn't. Yeah. It's an interesting one because like you're saying with the surprise, they come to the end of the road, like you're saying, right? It couldn't end any other way. It could only end at perdition. And they get there and the, the karma is met as it always had to because the, that was where the road was always going to lead. Yeah. Um, And for me, it's kind of... Uh, similar to what I generally say about Pixar movies and why Pixar movies are so good. Because when you spend as much time looking at film as as we do, which is far too much time, frankly, um, you know every single beat that a Pixar movie is going to have. And so when you watch a Pixar movie, there might be the odd plot twist that you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming, but it's pretty rare. You know the emotional beats that the movie's going to hit. What makes Pixar such an amazing studio is that you know the emotional beats that a movie's going to hit and it still makes you emotional. Right? Yeah. If, if, if a, like, a movie like Coco, which for me is the movie that makes me cry every single time I see it, if I can predict every single plot point of that movie, and I did when I, one of the first time I saw it, and I still cried, then that movie is delivering. Right, Because it's not like it's trying to surprise you and make you feel emotional because, oh, you didn't see that coming, a la <laughs> The Last Jedi. right? Where it's like, the only way to make you feel emotion for this story is to subvert your expectations of this story. Pixar don't try and subvert your expectations of what the story's going to be. The story is what it is. And the strength of that story is what makes you feel emotional. And if Road to Perdition was a stronger movie, you should have hit that Pixar emotional point at the end, at, at the end of the road. Because just because you can predict the ending doesn't mean that it shouldn't stay with you. And it's like, at the end of Toy Story, you know that Buzz and Woody are going to be best friends and they're going to be back, back with Andy. But if you still feel emotional at the end of Toy Story, it's because it's a fucking great movie. And yeah. if you don't have that same emotional satisfaction at the end of this, it's because there's something not quite hitting for the movie. Um, and yeah, I, I generally, I think I agree with you. I, I've, I came out of the movie thinking, that's a great movie. Great cast, great writing, 
great cinematography, great direction. Why does it feel like a 7.5? Yeah, that's right? it's odd. Why does it not... What, what's it missing when everything about it is fantastic, but it's not up there with the great the great movies of, of you know, of, of great gangster movies? It's like a, a B-tier gangster movie. Or a B plus, B plus, A minus maybe, but it's not. It's not <laughs> yeah. up there with with these other great gangster movies. And, and what's it lacking in that way? I'm not sure. Yeah, me neither. Seven point seven out of ten on IMDb. That seems fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seven, it doesn't, yeah. yeah, like it doesn't do anything wrong, but something about it. And I reckon it's Jude Law. Hit home. I reckon, and it's you, not Jude Law's performance. I think it's that Jude Law character. character. Yeah. yeah, they throw in a monster in the middle of a film mm-hmm. very much based in reality. Yeah. But let's, let's jump ahead because we've... Jesus Christ, this is this is going to be even longer than Real Steel. Um, Impossible. <laughs> uh, father and son relationship within the movie, did it remind you of your own father in any way? I bet it did. Uh, I'm going to throw out a dime and you're going to be like, oh, I don't know, but the tough father and the emotional disconnect between a father and son, that's something that must have hit you. Come on. Well, yeah, the fact that that was spoken about so recently Mm. um, certainly uh, made it chime with me a little bit. And And the the preferable, preferable treatment to the younger brother. Come on. Yeah, fucking younger brothers. (laughs) Little shits. I don't know about your younger brother, but my younger brother made it his life's mission to piss me off. And yet... <laughs> and he did it by having kids. Bastard. <laughs> Living no. a happy family life. If anything, him having kids did me a huge favour because now there's less pressure on me as the oldest to have my, some of my own. Um, but no, yeah, as, as kids, yeah, oh, he seemed like that was his mission. He was born to piss me off and get on my nerves. Um, but no, uh, in terms of, yeah, father-son... Uh, relationships I the word that kept striking me about this relationship and Tom Hanks character is duty mm-hmm. and I think the reason that was so prominent in my mind is that and Kat's already out of the bag from last week I go to therapy and something that apparently I take very much to heart is duty and putting duty before myself and putting duty before desire and putting duty before love even and in talking about that i did with i did uh, make the comparison with my dad because that is very much him his life has been about putting duty before himself so if like to recap stuff that anyone who's listened to more than one of these podcasts has probably already heard uh dad joined the police when he was 20 because he wanted to get married and have kids Hated it, but did it anyway until he had to leave because he got injured so many times that he was kind of <laughs> um, given uh, given a pen- early pension. Um, and then from then on, his life's goal was my duty here is as father and as husband to be a provider. And all I can, the only yeah, the only desire I really have, because all of my personal or artistic or adventurous desires are secondary to my duties there all i all i'm going to do is what will provide for my family and that very much was the case for when uh, he started his own business 10 15 years ago with the plan always from day one was build and build and build to the point where it can you can sell it 
for good money so that all that money can be put back into your family and in his case into me and my brother so there were instances throughout the, that period of him having his own business and trying to build it from the ground up and you know working himself into the ground there i was i was growing up i was going through my uh, discovery self-discovery period so i don't i wasn't really engaging much with my family i was kind of very self-involved and then it would come th- come through to me from my mum that like, he was work he was working himself to the ground he was putting him his body and his life at risk because of the stress he was putting himself under and you know when it came to when it came to fruition and all that work paid off and he could sell his business and could make money and could pass that back down to me and my brother it's and I was initially uh, reluctant. I had, I in fact turned it down. I was like, I don't want anything. Like you've put all the work in, you have deserved this. You should put all of that back into yourself. Like this is, you put yourself second to everybody else all this time. You've it's done. Jobs mission complete. Reap the rewards. But his revelation to me was that was never the point. The point was you. The point was you and your brother. Your point was, however hard this was, it was because so that you could have more than I did. Than I did, and so you wouldn't have to put yourself through this, because sure I've you know put myself through the ringer, but the whole point was so that you didn't have to. So he's very much always been a duty before anything else, and I have inherited that I think, and I will do what I think is right, even to the point for of this like in the working environment, if I have to do more than than others because I think it's the right thing to do if it's gonna and it might uh, you know it might mean that I stay at work late or it might mean that I have to renegle on a on a on a engagement with socially the right thing to do is to do your duty and in a occupation it's because you're being paid to do it and if you're in a relationship it's because there there are roles to fulfill within that relationship and even if they aren't what you really want to do in that moment it's your duty to do them because you've agreed you know you entered into a contract you're either entered into an employment contract or you've entered into a relationship contract figuratively and you need to fulfill that duty above all else and i have definitely taken that on and tom hanks's his character in this film very much takes on duty he is a killer he is you know he's murdered <laughs> countless people and intimidated even more most likely because he feels obliged to serve the man who saved him and his family. I think there's the backstory that he was in the war, was a bit of a war hero, came back, had nothing. Rooney, Mr. Rooney took him in, gave him his family a home, gave him money, gave him a job. So as far as uh, Michael Sullivan is, Mike Sullivan is concerned, it's his duty to repay that until he dies. That's it. He has to just repay what was given to him. And so, uh, yeah, I can definitely draw a comparison between my dad and Michael Sullivan in in that respect, as well as, like you've said, being quite emotionally repressed um, and putting himself, uh, well, sacrificing his life literally to save the soul of his, his son. Yeah, I don't think I got anything for my... <laughs> It always goes. I think it, these always go. Un, they're always unbalanced, aren't they? Yeah. One of us goes, "Wow, yeah, this is profound." The other one goes, "Nah, nothing." Tom Hanks is all right, though. 
<laughs> yeah, he's a good choice if you're going to see your dad in anyone. Tom Hanks is, is the one to see it. I think uh, this is a good step into our what needs to be our next uh, series that we've brought up a couple of times before. But Awful Therapy is needs to, going to be a new podcast coming to Awful Commentary soon where we just do, uh, we'll do therapy with a bunch of different people and just um, expand on, on different issues and stuff. Because I've got some stuff to say about duty as well and a sense of duty, but it doesn't connect to a father and son thing necessarily. But it's a really interesting discussion I think we should come back to. On the first issue of Awful Therapy, <laughs> me and Dave talking about a, a sense of duty and how that's impacted our lives. Um, that'd be fun. That's something to do. Uh, oh, the one thing I did want to say, though, um, in, uh, in reading this and watching this, I was thinking, this is awfully similar to a certain tones evoked in The Mandalorian. And then, uh, after reading more about The Mandalorian, I was like, this is awfully similar to the manga Lone Wolf and Cub, which I hadn't, I hadn't read before, um, but know a lot about because it's very influential. And it's this father and son, uh, uh, the father is a ronin, essentially, um, on the run from, uh, uh, from some great power, from some great threat, trying to protect their young son on the way and guide them in the world to stop them from becoming the sinful person that the father, that the father is. And um, Lone Wolf and Cub is a super influential version. The Mandalorian is very uh, very heavily influenced by this. And after reading more about the graphic novel, which was written by um, Max Allen Collins and illustrated by Richard Piers Rayner, um, who did lots of work on Hellblazer, the original Constantine stuff, so great artist through and through. Definitely recommend checking out the book. It's different to the movie, but definitely recommended. Um, Max Allen Collins said, Lone Wolf and Cub was a big influence on this. Alongside like The Godfather and like other gangster things, Lone Wolf and Cub um, played a really big role. And so I think we should um, embark on a, a number of Lone Wolf and Cub-inspired properties of fathers and sons on the run, discovering more about each other while under the greatest threat imaginable. We've got Road to Perdition, we've got Lone, uh, Lone Wolf and Cub itself, the manga series. It'll be our first, our first like solely comic book thing. Oh, I think there's an animated adaptation, but we're not going to look at that. Um, and then we'll come round to the Mandalorian, the series finale of that at some point as well. But it's, it sets us up with some cool father and son relationships to uh, to discuss in the future that sounds great all right great well thank you for listening everybody now that i've got my way i'm not gonna backtrack um if you've made it if you've made it this far then congratulations to you i hope that you enjoy road to perdition it's a pretty good movie you think it's a pretty good movie i think it's it's a it's a good movie yeah absolutely there's there's nothing wrong with it and uh, i enjoyed it quite a lot that's all we need. Thank that's you very week, much. That's a weak fucking review. Don't wrap up now. That was terrible. Oh, no, we're wrapping up. We're wrapping up together. Okay, wrap up, catch, wrap up. I've got nothing better. Catch us next time uh, on Awful Therapy and come back for, for Danny Issues as well. Bye. <laughs> yeah, please leave. <laughs> <laughs>